We are at Atwood Unleashed 86. It's the first one for 2023. I'm here with Stephen Knight. I'm so excited. Ash has lined up three of the heaviest hitters in the history of the channel to talk about Klaus Schwab. That's going to be the opener. Then we're going to be going over to Madeline McCann for an hour. I'm going to break this down in much more detail in a second, but huge thank you to Stephen Knight for joining us. Huge thank you for everyone tuning in today. Hope you're all having a great new year, wherever you are watching this in the world. Facebook, we're back we're, we're back up on Facebook. We were banned for six months. And uh, we're on Twitter and all these other platforms right now. So this evening, we've got nine guests across the four-hour show. First two and a quarter hours on YouTube, hours three and four on Patreon. If you get a chance, link to Patreon is in the description box if you want to join our great community over there which also enables us to make content like this. And I'm going to also be announcing some of the um, polls we've put out, the results of some of the polls. I'll, I'll get to that after I've just done the guest lineup. All right, so from six to seven, it's going to be a round table discussion on the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, the triple whammy guests include Charlie Robinson, it's his 12th time on the show. And the Klaus Schwab videos that we've done so far in recent months have all gone viral. He's going to be joined by David Whitehead, who's brought people on who've been victims of human transportation and ex-scientologists, among other stuff. And Jay Dyer, who has been on the channel multiple times. He's an expert on symbolism in Hollywood and has in-depth knowledge about the WEF and the NWO. All right, Stephen. So cheers for joining us. Do you want to announce the second guest of the night? Certainly do. I'm looking forward to this one. From between seven and eight, I'll be talking to YouTubers Chris and Amy from True Crime Recaps uh, channel. That's got nearly 300,000 subscribers. Uh, over the course of the interview, we'll be give, getting insights and updates on the Madeleine McCann case, some fairly uh, starking new developments on that one. Uh, and we'll be getting uh, coverage on the high-profile Idaho murders as well. Uh, then I believe we switch over to Patreon. Uh, yeah, so, uh, this, sorry, looks really interesting. This, <clears throat> this looks really interesting, this Facebook guest that you've got, because they work for Facebook. And with us, with this specific show being banned from Facebook for the last six months, this is really applicable. But yeah, go, go for it, uh, there, Stephen. Yeah, I think they'll be telling us a lot of what we've already suspected in terms of, you know, social media censorship. So from 10 past eight, I'll be speaking to Facebook whistleblowers Ryan Hartwig and Jason Fike, I believe that said, uh, will be joining us first on Patreon. Uh, Ryan wrote the book Behind the Mask of Facebook. Uh, the book is about how Ryan was hired to keep shocking images off the platform. Uh, it soon became, became clear uh, that Facebook bosses saw an even bigger threat. Uh, Ryan watched in horror as Facebook made a momental shift after the 2016 elections, hiring thousands of US-based content moderators um, with one mission to favor leftist viewpoints while suppressing the speech of conservatives. It feels like a common theme, this, doesn't it? It does um, indeed. Let me just do a quick poll of the viewers. Viewers, let us know how you feel about this. Put a one in the chat if you feel that Facebook censorship is a necessary evil to prevent hate speech. Put a two in the chat if you think Facebook 
censorship is completely out of control and is suppressing freedom of speech. All right, you want to go on to Stephen Coles? I'm sure they'll all be on the same page. Free speech is never a controversial subject. Mm. So uh, from there, I'll be speaking to founder of SasquatchDetective.com, uh, Steve Coles. Uh, Ash has put here, he'll be dropping by to speak to female Bigfoot fanatic Stephen Knight for a good old chinwag. Ash is well aware of my love for all things Bigfoot. Uh, Steve uh, Coles has also featured on the History Channel, the Travel Channel, uh, Destination America and National Geographic, and is the host of Sasquatch DTV. Uh, Steve founded Sasquatch Detective in 1999, and the site has become a pillar of debunking hoaxes and misidentifications, with occasionally finding gems of evidence in a sea of analysis. <laughs> Love a bit of Sasquatch. <laughs> I don't right. think I've ever said that word so many times in such a short space of time. <laughs> <laughs> like one of those tongue twisters. Yeah. So we got we're closing the first show of 2023. With another heavy hitter who went so viral on the channel before the great censorship that we suffered, all his stuff had to be removed. He had millions of views. And we're talking about Kevin Annette. Kevin goes hard on the Vatican, he goes hard on the royals, he goes hard on the Canadian government. And deservedly so, because he's a man of the church. He was a former minister of the United Church of Canada who became an activist and author of books about indigenous people in Canada, exposing the history of abuse and atrocities among indigenous kids in the church's residential schools. So he'll be on from nine till 10 tonight. Now I'm just going to pull up the results of the polls we put out this week and I'll get Stephen's thoughts on them. So we had Richard Grananon, an expert in narcissism. Many people have been watching the Netflix show about Harry and Meghan. I could only watch it for so much before. I, just... <laughs> I think I'm the same as you. <laughs> <laughs> so the poll, the poll we put out is: um, Are Prince Harry and Meghan narcissists? And we got five point six thousand votes. Eighty percent said yes. Sixteen percent said no. Four percent said other. So what particular aspects of the show made you queasy, Stephen? I think it was not, it, I mean, them two are bad enough, but that aside, I think it's the fact that the, the contribu contributors to it were a who's who of the worst people in British commentary on social issues. So I think Gahindri Andrews was in there, Afua Hirsch was in there, the you know chief race baiters of very progressive publications. Um, and, you know, within the, the open the mouth and uh, like a, a tsunami of lies fell out in terms of British culture and where we are in, in race relations. And I think I had to go and sharply do something else. Yeah, it was a bit of a puff piece. Yeah. The other poll we put out is Andrew Tate, A, being framed as he predicted, B, guilty, or C, other. And on YouTube, we got 10,000 votes in five days. 68% believe he is being framed as he predicted. 26% said guilty and 6% said other. And on the live stream just two nights ago, we had 2,000 on that one at the peak talking about Tate's prison conditions. We had Dan on, who, who served five and a half years in Romanian prison, and he was in the exact same prison 
Rahova that Tate's going and he so he knew he knew the whole procedures. If you've not seen that one, it is going viral on the channel. It was put up a few days ago, so you guys can perhaps um check that one out. It was almost three hours long, actually. But but um Dan had a lot of knowledge and information. Um any any thoughts on the Andrew Tate situation? Because he did say, and this this happened to me, Stephen. Tate said that you get three strikes. The first strike, they destroy your reputation. The second strike, they arrest you. Third strike, they kill you. And I know this is true because um, when we were reporting on a certain subject, we can't report on anymore. First off, there was campaigns to destroy my reputation. Then I was called into the cop shop, and I've got a caution now on um, reporting on cases that involved harm to kids. And if I violate that caution, I can now get sent to prison. And then and the third thing, um, they kill you. Not got to that level yet, so I'm, I'm thinking I'm lucky there. Um, yeah, think, what do you think about <laughs> <laughs> Um It's a difficult one because obviously influential people who are having an impact, authorities can and do look at ways in which to silence them. More, I would say, um, you know, the the media outlets than anything else. But I mean, it's it's one hell of a, a good little uh, alibi, isn't it? To be perhaps in Andrew's case, maybe possibly potentially doing things illegal, uh, but putting out the idea that if anything happens to me, I predicted this, uh, some sort of smokescreen. So I don't, I don't know. I, I am open. I'm, I'm not a particularly big fan of what I've seen from him as an individual, but I've no doubt much of what he said has also been misrepresented. It happens to any public figure who dares to touch on controversial and taboo subjects people decide we don't like that we don't want to hear that we don't want him to influence people let's let's smear them so i, I i'll wait and see the outcome of the investigation but um i mean what what has he been charged with exactly did i see something about trafficking yeah human transportation is one of them and then he's got um sexual assault and some kind of criminal enterprise he's got two female co-defendants as well so when we spoke to Dan, Dan said it's been announced in the remaining news that the prosecutor said he's got video evidence of this. And the other thing is as well, if they arrest you and put a hold on you for 30 days, which is a unique procedure in the Romanian justice system, Dan said that they only do that if they've got enough evidence to convict you, otherwise they wouldn't have done it because he is so high profile. Now, Dan, he said, you know, he's, that Tate is probably going to get found guilty because of this 30-day thing. But my thing was, you know, the justice system, it can be used to liquidate people. Tate's been flexing that he's got all this money, all these cars. Romania, what's the average salary for a prosecutor or a cop out in Romania, monthly salary? If they can hmm. liquidate your assets, rich Westerners in these poor countries are like meal tickets for the local people. So whether he's innocent or guilty, there is a presumption of innocence right now. But even if they do find him guilty, they could just get, you know, people to say things about him or whatever find him guilty and just take all his money off him it's a big pot of gold at the you know at the end of the process there for, for people i don't know if he's innocent or guilty i'm completely neutral on it but uh, i know how corrupt the justice system is from my own experience yeah and especially when you put that in the context of romania as well it's, it's difficult to vouch for the uh the level of you know Due uh, process that would be applied there. So, yeah, it, it could be a case of that he's been targeted by by uh, the authorities for the reasons you've stated. I mean, I'm not sure how we'd ever find out in that respect. Then, if there is sort of a collusion and, and uh, collaboration of corrupt parties to bring him down, um, I mean, when's do have we any idea when the next big update might be in terms of his case? Well, this is the thing, isn't it? There's so much speculation online about what's happening with him and what's happening in the prison and. 
there's all these theories. Every video we put out of him, several of the comments always say he's already been released. What are you talking about? There's this conspiracy theory that he's been released. He's not even in prison. And um, it's all speculation. That's why I went to Dan, because he knows the procedures in Romania. I thought he'd give a very interesting perspective. But as soon as there's any kind of legal development, it's international news, so it's probably going to be announced. But everyone right now is just chomping at the bit to see what happens next. Mm. And, and the other thing Dan says, you know, even all over the world, I mean, we've interviewed people who've been in prisons all over the world. If, you, if you've got allegations of crimes against women, especially of the nature of, you know, what has been said in this case, it's, it's KOS in America, kill on sight. So Dan said that Tate will have been put, you know, in an area away from the general population so they can't get him. And we asked about his kickboxing skills, you know, would, would that help him and things like that. And he said, there's been many a kickboxer champion go to Romanian prison and then thinking they, they're somebody and they, they're confronted with knives and the knives win. Yeah, that sounds particularly grim. I think, uh, to be honest, my main takeaway from this is to strike Romania off my holiday list. To be honest, <laughs> I think I think well, that's 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 one. I don't know. I won't go that far. <laughs> I think um, we've probably got some Romanian viewers, and I'm could be nice useless day. in a knife fight in a Romanian jail. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, but you're not you're not going to end up in jail in, in Romania, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the tagline of the official tourism board. For a, come to Romania, you won't end up in jail. <laughs> you don't strike me as the criminal type. <laughs> that, that's how I got away with it for so long. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna um, bring in the guests here um, in, a, in a minute or so. So we'll we'll see you soon, Stephen. Thanks, brother. Cheers. See you soon. Right. Let's see. There we go. All right. Thanks, everyone. We are absolutely buzzing right now to have three of our all-time heaviest-hitting guests exposing the NWO. I cannot believe we're going to have all three of them on the screen at the same time. And we're going to be starting with David. Because I can see him right there. <laughs> Let's bring him in while the um, the others are coming in. Hey, hey, David, how's it going, man? Sean, what's up, man? How you doing? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, brother. I was just watching um, the stuff we did with Mike Rinder about a year ago today. How phenomenal that was. And um, really appreciate you know all of the appearances you've done on the channel over the years. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Your channel's hopping, uh, super popular. I get uh, people ask me about it all the time. So you guys are rocking it. Happy to be here. Do you want to tell the viewers, just the ones that are not familiar with you, about what you do? What do I do? Uh, wow, that's really hard to always break down. I do a bunch of things, but I'm a podcaster. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm a freedom fighter. I live in British Columbia, Canada, and I host my own show called Truth Warrior, I've been producing a documentary film series that people can watch for free right now. There's nine chapters out. It's called Cult of the Medics. It's a deep investigation into the occult roots of the medical industrial complex. I also co-host a, a deep premium podcast with my good friend, Michael Tessarian from Ireland. Uh, we call it Unslaved, and we dive into psychology, history, conspiracy, secret societies, philosophies, all the issues, all the things. We talk about it all. 
And I'm just a curious guy. I, I want to know what kind of world I live in, where it's going, and what we can do to solve this current state of tyranny and deception and uh, all the scams that are all simultaneously unfolding right now for everybody to see. So I'm just here to take part and be a part of this war against tyranny. All right, over to Charlie Robinson. Happy New Year, brother. Happy New Year to you, Jay, happy, as well. Happy New Year 12, to you all. Thank you for 12, having me. 12 appearance on the channel. Oh, is that Charlie is it, Robinson? Yeah. I got my punch card. It's all filled up. <laughs> Can you remind the few viewers who are not familiar with you, Charlie, what you do? Oh, I write books and then talk about crazy stuff on my podcast, Macroaggressions. And um, actually, this... This uh, in a month from well, today, I'll be in Acapulco, Mexico at Anarcapulco, the largest anarchist convention in the world. You can go check me. I'll be there with uh, Max Egan, Larkin Rose, Dan Dix, Del Bigtree, Mark Passio, Andrew Kaufman, Dr. Kerry Midday, uh, and Dr. Ron Paul. So sweet. And I'm going to be doing a digital one on that one, Anarcapulco. So everybody nice. should go and buy tickets. Uh, we're all going to be there and we're going to kick some ass. Yeah, absolutely. Many of you have seen the deep research Jay Dyer has done on symbolism, Hollywood, its relation to certain human transportation cases and the NWO. So, Jay, huge thank you for coming on, brother. Can you just tell the viewers a little bit about what you do? I am. Oop, we've got Jay's. I am the world's first Klaus impersonator. So I'll be in. Uh, I'll be performing in Vegas, uh, doing my Klaus for the next month uh, at the uh, the the giant pyramid. I guess that'd be more appropriate, right? The the oh, yeah. one in Vegas is a pyramid. Um, yeah. So I I do movies. I do analysis. I do breakdowns. Big geopolitical text, kind of make them uh, palatable and bite sized for the audience. And uh, glad to be back on, Sean. Uh, we always have great conversations. I think this is my fourth or fifth time with you. And I've had you on as well, so uh, really, really thankful to be here. I do a lot of work with uh, Richard Grove now, so he and I have been uh, collaborating on podcasts and lectures. Uh, and I host the fourth hour of He Who Cannot Be Named. <clears throat> you, you know who I'm talking about. Unbelievable. <laughs> that guy. All right, so what, so what we'll do is then we'll, we'll go around in a, a clockwise direction on these questions. So David, Charlie, Jay. And what we'll do is also take questions from the audience I've got a few questions for you off the top of my head. And as the audience put them in the live streams on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Facebook, YouTube, wherever they're watching them, Ash, if you can collate those, because it's going to get backlogged, it's going to get busy, it's going to get crazy. I have, so a we'll question. Go over the I have a question. Yeah, go for it. Will we be involved in any penetrating of cabinets? I know Klaus is really into that. Will, it be, will it be penetrating any cabinets today? <laughs> That's on Patreon. Oh, that's, yeah. oh, that's on uh, that's yeah. on Sean's OnlyFans. Okay, we're gonna penetrate their cabinets and expose them. <laughs> All right. So first, first basic then to David. What is Davos? Well, Davos is a place. It's an idea. There was an idea that was Davos, and that idea is uh, basically a feudal system, a neo-feudal system being set up by the world's wealthiest elite. There's trillions of dollars behind. Uh, what is known as the Davos Click or the Davos Group, which is a collection of all your favorite globalists uh, who are working in tandem with World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, the United Nations, the Club of Rome, and many other shadowy organizations that are even behind them. And uh, it's an interesting place, Davos. Speaking of pyramids, 
Jay. And by the way, I'm a big fan and give my shout out to Richard Grove. He's done great work. Charlie, it's my first time meeting you. Glad to be here with all of you guys. Um, but it, there's a big giant pyramid right at the entrance to Javos. I don't know. Is that just coincidence? Maybe they're just trying to show, oh, there's mountains here. It's mountains, you know, lots of mountains. Um, being that the pyramid is the symbol of the mountain. Uh, but anyways, uh, Davos and this whole great reset thing is uh, something that everybody needs to go and look at. And you can just go and start listening to what these people say. These people that go and meet at these G20 summits, um, you know, that my prime minister, Justin Twinkletoes Trudeau, likes to go hang out with, even though they even kick him to the curb because he's such an embarrassment. Um, but, you know, this is a hobnobbing group of elites that are trying to basically take over the world and control all the land, resources and wealth. And uh, their number one slogan is that you're going to own nothing and be happy. And we all just went through a crash course of what that sort of starts to look like over the past three years with the global thing that shall not be named because I think we're on YouTube, correct? Uh, that's right. a basic breakdown. There's so many places we can go from there. Charlie, what would you like to add to that? Well, I'd like to add um, Santa Claus's own words to this. This is what he said. We do not yet know just how it will unfold, but one thing is clear. The response to it must be integrated and comprehensive, involving all stakeholders of the global polity, from the public and private sectors to academia and civil society. It will change not only what we do, but also who we are. It will affect our identity and all the issues associated with it, our sense of privacy, our notions of ownership, our consumption patterns, the time we devote to work and leisure, and how we develop our careers, cultivate our skills, meet people, and nurture relationships. So he intends for this to be transformative and cause you to reevaluate your senses of privacy and any sort of notion of ownership. That's what he means when he says you'll own nothing and be happy. Scary shit. Over to Jay. Yeah, I think that the best way to understand uh, what Davos and the World Economic Forum is, is to understand that the same power structure and entity that set up what everybody's probably heard of as the, uh, I'm not going to say this word because the algorithm, but the B-Berg group, because actually the algorithm does uh, bump down when you say this group, <laughs> uh, which I've experienced on my channel. So that group, which was set up, uh, I think, in the early 50s by, uh, according to David Rockefeller in his memoirs, by his clique, by his friends, as well as some other European nobility that had a background uh, in terms of being uh, SS, uh, Prince Bernhard was uh, formative in, in setting up the Bieber group. And then out of that came this uh, this public entity, and a thing that would be more public. Bieberg is a semi-private group that would meet every year. And then Davos is kind of this public, uh, more, let's bring in the celebrities, let's bring in you know Leonardo DiCaprio and Kevin Spacey, and, and then push that in a kind of public sort of pseudo leftist uh, situation for the rest of the world. But the key point there is that really builder be really Davos comes out of the ideas of what was called the Harvard project and Henry Kissinger and the CIA to set up something a little more public than Bieber. All right. Thanks for that. So if you, if people have just jumped on the stream, we're rapidly approaching a thousand on the live. So if you have got questions, Get them in now so we can get your questions at the top of the list when we open it up to the public questions. So 
Why is Klaus Schwab being spoken about so much at the moment? You absolutely see him everywhere, David. Because of people like us, Sean, we made the man famous uh, by exposing this agenda because I don't know if anybody really even paid attention to who Klaus Schwab was until the whole situation unfolded over the last few years um, because it was just incident. It was a coincidence, of course. You know, it was just a coincidence that they announced this great reset uh, during the pandemic. And uh, we can say that. Can we say that? We can say that at least. Maybe. We, maybe we shouldn't risk it. Anyways, abbreviations, be, abbreviations are always appreciated. We're going to have to resort to hand signals over Zoom now. <laughs> this is the way we're at. Um, but basically, um, we have been talking about him, and I think they want us to talk about him. And I don't, I don't think they even care about the negative press. I think they're like, any press is it is good press. They believe that they've got this thing cinched. They've been planning this for decades. Um it's something that, uh, and I'm glad that Jay pointed out the history of this. This is something that people that are just coming into this now, because there's way more conspiracy theorists now than there ever was, which is great. And uh, it's now, you're not a theorist, by the way. You're a researcher and a you know fact collector. Um, but basically, you know, we have done a good job, I think, at least of bringing people a different perspective on it. And our job, I think, is to show people the history of where these people come from, what they're what they've been advocating for. Uh, since, you know, say the Paris Climate Accord, the real summit, uh, the law, the, the stuff with the climate gate thing and the climate scam is all weaved into it. The transhumanism, changing of the economy. But as uh, Charlie was mentioning, they're also talking openly now about changing what it means to be a human being. And that is, I think, the biggest concern people should be having with who these people are. And even though we're all excited about technology, uh, it's like, oh, technology is great. And they're showing it to us in the movies and it's going to fix all the health problems. It's going to extend our lives. It's going to give us so many different uh, new abilities and superpowers, just like the Marvel Avengers. Uh, that's what everybody thinks it is. But I think that's just a fancy sales pitch for another system of control where they can do something called bio digital surveillance, uh, where essentially it's not just about having a couple cameras up in your local neighborhood. They're literally monitoring your genetics at this point. They're monitoring every movement that you make. If you look at what China's doing right now, uh, it's that's just the beginning stages of what they want to implement for the world with a social digital credit system, complete restructuring of the economy, complete restructuring of your government, where essentially you're just a little vassal state in a big global empire. Um, and look what they're doing with the farmers, the land and everything else. And uh, they're doing it off of the back of these various threats. So the reason Schwab is so popular is because he's kind of like the PR manager. He's the spokesperson. He's the chairman. Uh, he was also uh, on the one of the committing committee boards for the B group. Uh, Jay, if I'm sure you remember that. He was integrally involved in that back in the day. And I think a lot of people are also forgetting about uh, Prince King Charles, um, where he's declared something called the Terra Carta, which I did a whole deep dive on, which is what he's calling the new basically mandate for the world to replace the Magna Carta. See, the Magna Carta issued out rights for every human being uh, to have free rights and to not be oppressed by their government. But the Terra Carta is now giving nature rights. And even though I know all the hippies are like, yay, finally the trees in my backyard have rights. Um, we have to talk about the fine print of what that really means for humans, especially when they're openly saying they want to change us into something else. So Sorry, I know that's a lot of stuff, but Klaus Schwab is famous because we help make him famous because we're trying to expose what these people are really up to.
Over to you, Charlie. Well, another reason, and those are all very good reasons why we're talking about him. But another reason why we're talking about him is because we're, we have big problems with his spokespeople. Justin Trudeau, Yacinda Ardern, um, um, uh, Emmanuel Macron, Christia Freeland. We all these people come out and they start talking about things over the last year, year and a half, two years. And it's inconsistent with logic and reality. And it starts to make you question, why are these people saying these things? And as you start to dig in a little bit as to why, you know, why are they all uh, going with this very unusual agenda? It leads you to one person and they all come out of the Klaus uh, school. And then, of course, he's on the record talking about how he's penetrated cabinets and things like that. And so it's not it's not a surprise. So part of the reason why we're talking about Klaus is because he has so many people speaking on behalf of him, you know, for him. And, And they're out there in high level management positions, making extremely dangerous and important decisions about freedoms, lockdown, surveillance, uh, who can and cannot come into their countries and, and things like that. So when you see the insanity of, uh, of the, uh, of some of these leaders and the, you know, the embarrassing, embarrassing, uh, behavior of people like Trudeau, it, it, it causes you to sort of, you know, think, well, I know he's not saying, and he's, he's too dumb to have this thought him himself so who is he getting it from and of course it leads back to klaus so klaus has become famous in part because his students have become so unbelievably incompetent okay jay yeah klaus is famous because um they intended i think to finally have somebody sort of be the public face of this uh inner sort of steering committee style of governance which is the way the, the world is really run is that you had about 100 years ago, <clears throat> maybe a little more than that, the British Empire set up what they called steering committees and roundtable groups. And it's a way that they would run the empire or the run the, the superstructure of the global government that they wanted to put in place through sort of an inner group with an outer face. And so Klaus represents the sort of coming out party of that inner party. And um, he's sort of the, what I would say is kind of like the go-between between the public and the inner party which is weird because he's not the most palatable kind of person he's literally a a kind of a bond villain and i almost wonder if they didn't do that on purpose to have him kind of operate that way but really the 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 purpose of all this is that as he himself said and uh, as david was pointing out like the this new covenant like if you read uh when he put out his uh 2018 book shaping the fourth industrial revolution he described the need for a new moral a new covenant a new ethic and what uh, David was talking about with this uh, this earth ethic is the thing that Klaus was talking about. And they said that the last few years, I mean, Klaus was writing prior to Koof, but when we had the Koof uh, come out, that was, according to him, the vehicle for moving us into the next phase of the Great Reset. So that that's what this is all about. And that's why he's so famous is that he's intended to be the mouthpiece of this inner group. Okay, David, what is the fourth industrial revolution? It is, to my knowledge, it is the merging with AI and nanotech and all these new forms of technology. It's the uh, process of bringing about transhumanism, which is, uh, again, the same thing, and building that into some kind of a structure where they can actually make a global uh, a global central control grid that's going to manage all of that so it's the fourth industrial revolution is i mean all these different phases of revolution they're looking at this as just oh this is just a natural curve of history 
you know, we did this revolution you know, of all these different industrial revolutions. And this is the next step for humanity is to merge with technology to this level. Um, but I think some of, a lot of this was guided. I think, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with technology, obviously, but if tech technology should be serving humanity, it shouldn't be setting up a global technocracy that Aldous Huxley warned us about and so many others uh, where essentially we are slaves to technology because who gets to manage the AI, who's programming the algorithms in Silicon Valley, who gets to have all the access to the control knobs and the switches and the surveillance cameras and the whole system, right? So it's essentially in my book, it's the end of human freedom. And it's also going to be the end of human thriving because um, this, the people that are involved in this great reset and that are buddies with Klaus Schwab are open advocates for reducing the population of humanity for things like eugenics, even though they'll never use that word, um, and other, other things that we've seen in past totalitarian systems that I think this is just their way of modifying their attempts in the past and bringing it all together. And uh, at some point, I'd love to ask the other uh, guys in the room here who I know are very good at this stuff about their thoughts of the financial structure and the political structure that the Great Reset is based upon where they're calling it something called stakeholder capitalism. Um, and, you know, there's the discussion about, is this new world order going to be communism, socialism, fascism, cap? what's it going to be? And um, I've got some quotes from people like Carol Quigley and things like that to get into some ideas on it. But um, anyways, that's kind of my thing is that this has been guided. We've been guided to this position that we're in. And there are small groups of people who are unelected, unaccountable, that have trillions of dollars invested behind them by these investing firms that are proposing a very specific kind of a fourth industrial revolution that they've written about openly, um, just calling it different names for literally decades, if not centuries. So uh, for them to go around and say, oh, it's just a natural ebb and flow of history. And this is just where we're at in our human, the game of humanity. Uh, I, I don't believe it. I think they guided us here because they want a central control grid, uh, that will actually be a combination of all the other central control grids they tried to, uh, create in the past. Over to Charlie. I'm sure you've got lots to add to that, especially the financial side. Yeah. Well, David mentioned that, that they don't use the term eugenics anymore. You're right. They, they've, it's been rebranded. It's now called transhumanism doesn't sound as bad. But so let's start with this. The first industrial revolution was water and steam. The second industrial revolution was oil, electricity, and steel. The third industrial revolution, which we are in right now, is computers, electronics, and internet. And the fourth industrial revolution, according to them, is physical, biological, and digital. And I will say this is what Klaus said, describing transhumanism. Fusion of technologies that is blurring the lines between the physical, digital, and biological spheres. He said, what the fourth industrial revolution will lead to is a fusion of our physical, digital, and biological identities. Now, there's a, a number of reasons to be concerned about this. <clears throat> but one that jumps out at me that, that doesn't get talked about a lot, but I'm, I promise you it's in, in the back of their mind, maybe even in the front. And that is that if you if you take a if you think about the genetically modified food industry, you can't patent a tomato, a natural tomato it comes from nature. You just can't patent it. They don't allow you to. But if you modify that tomato by one deviation, 
it no longer is a natural tomato. It now is something else. It's a genetically modified organism. It's it still looks like a tomato for the most part, and it might taste like a tomato, but legally and physically, it is not. And my my thoughts on this is that once you become transhuman, you are no longer legally human. And that means that laws don't apply. You can now be owned, sold, traded, exterminated, whatever. You, you're no longer a person legally. You might feel like a person, you might not, but you might look like a person, but you're not anymore because you have now moved from being a natural human to something else. They have a name for that. I'm sure Jay knows it, but that to me is the trap of the fourth industrial revolution. And, and for those that say this is conspiracy theory, I, I assure you it is conspiracy fact. In fact, you can go to weforum.org, their own website, and read about it yourself. They're not hiding it. It's right out in the open. It's only hidden to the extent that the public chooses not to go and search for it. But it's right there on their website. That is their plan. All right, over to Jay. Yeah, I remember being in college and uh, I was first reading about this stuff in grad school and I, was, I brought this up to my professor and he was like, oh, do you believe everything on the internet? You th-? And I'm like, Isn't, aren't you on the internet? <laughs> like, you're on the internet. So you tell me I shouldn't believe things on the internet. I'm like, but your university is on the internet. So what should I not believe you now? I mean, the the sort of bullheadedness of the people who deny uh, at this point is sort of, it's like, I don't know if there's any hope for you. If you're still denying this stuff at this point, so, yeah, I think that the question of what kind of a system it is that they're putting in, what is this uh, that the Great Reset wants to do economically and in terms of biology? The book I'm lecturing through right now is a Romanian historian who's kind of a good successor to Carol Quigley. And Quigley wrote the books from the establishment's perspective. So he did Tragedy and Hope, which is like a defense of the system that they're bringing in. He also wrote another book called Anglo-American Establishment, which goes deeper into the, the actual structure of the system that we live in. And so the, the book that I'm lecturing through now is kind of a successor to that. It's a Romanian historian about the Milner-Fabian conspiracy. And the reason Fabianism is important is because whether it's Klaus or whether it's Kissinger or whether it's David Rockefeller himself, they all were influenced by Fabian socialist ideology, which is like Keynesianism, basically. And so John Maynard Keynes is the British uh, uh, economist who's philosophy went into the creation of the imf the world bank these entities and so from klaus's perspective he's just following in suit with this same ideology which is basically the merging of big capitalism monopoly capitalism and a form a form of uh, reformed marxism they called it known as fabianism these these things go together very well in a synthesis to create what we know of as the nwo or the transhumanist future and transhumanism was, was coined by Julian Huxley when he wrote the uh, preamble or the philosophy to UNESCO. And uh, he's part of, he was the brother of uh, Aldous Huxley. And so his philosophy is actually that we need to rebrand and rephrase what uh, eugenics was and turn it into biometrics and transhumanism. So that's just the rebranding that Charlie was talking about. And then you can see a perfect continuity from those guys back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, up to today, when you read Klaus's book, the last third of Klaus's book is actually how to put into place Skynet. It's basically Skynet, but not microchips. It's through nanotech. 
So everything is intended to be rewritten, including the whole the whole biosphere. So uh, I could go more into that, but I'll let other people talk. But yeah, that's that's what this is all about. And the economics is just one element of this new system they're bringing in, which is to replace everything with a kind of a synthetic overlay. And the, the economy is what you're hearing about with CBDCs, which is central bank digital currencies that are just even, an even worse version of fiat and an even more uh, lockdown control style method of economics beyond what we've known with uh, the, the existing physical cash fiat system. It's the next level of that. Right, I've got a quick message from Ash. He said that there's so many people in the chat that the questions that we asked for earlier on have scrolled off the top of it. So he's lost them. So um, if you if you posted the question when we asked the questions earlier on, can you please repost your question now? And Ash is going to get on the ball and he's going to grab those as they come in. But it is going fast right now. There's almost 1,500 watching live. So huge thank you to everyone who's been watching and sharing this. And I, I'll just throw a question out there then. So, David, why do they even need us? Aren't we just useless eaters? Couldn't they just do something to eradicate us at some point? Wow, what a question. Aren't, is, aren't they underway with that process right now? Um, well, there's a few ways to look at it. In some, It's like they have like a love-hate relationship with us. They, they clearly need us, or at least some of us. I think they're just at the point where they're like, we've got to trim the fat. You know, there's too many. You know, we need to have the we need to protect nature from these filthy humans. You know, uh, there, there's too many, too many players on the board, but in another sense, they need us for our productive and creative energy, because, uh, I think a lot of these people at the very, very tip top, and I'm talking about some of the primary psychopaths that are behind the curtain that we don't even see. Um, they, they don't really have any empathy. And when you don't have any empathy, you don't really have much creativity. And so you need to set up these sort of roundtable groups and these collection agencies of talent in a way so that you can pull people into your ranks that have that productive creative energy so that you can bring a sort of genius level to your evil plans in a way. Um, and they need us for that productive energy. They needed us for farming back in the Middle Ages. They needed us to till the land and do all the hard labor. They needed us for mining. They needed us for all these different things. But now with technology, I think their dream, their wet dream is they're like, well, we don't need humans organically anymore. So we're going to now convert that into something that can be more highly controlled and regulated, like what Charlie was pointing out brilliantly there. Uh, and by the way, it's an honor to be amongst such educated men fighting this fight. This is amazing. Um, but he was pointing out how uh, essentially... Um, Oh, I'm losing my train of thought. There's so many things going through my head. The uh, the idea here is that they they need us for they, or they want to merge us with this technology because then they can control society more. So they're they're thinking we're entering a new phase of being able to manage Earth's resources, and we don't really need these as many of these pesky humans anymore. So they need us in one sense, but now they're looking to transition us into a new type of being that can be more highly controlled. Um, and even more productive for them. And uh, that means that for us organic, freedom-loving humans, we have to make our stand now and uh, remember and remind the younger generations, what is freedom? What does it mean to be human? Why is it valuable? Why are these people crazy? Why should they be ignored? Where's the lies? Where's the scams? That's what we need to be doing moving forward. All right, over to Charlie. Well, let's quote the uh, one of the bigger psychopaths, bigger in 
well, not bigger in stature, but bigger in mentality, Professor Yuval Noah Harari, top advisor to Klaus Schwab, who says, humans are now hackable animals. The whole idea that humans have this soul or spirit and nobody knows what's happening inside them and they have free will, that's over. So those that make it through um, will be hacked. Those that do not make it through will be eliminated. They don't need as many of us as there are here. You've been to a Walmart before. For God's sakes, you know, I mean, even normal people go through that and they go, there's just too many people here. When you add psychopathy and power and this uh, d this sort of um, philosophy to it and, and a lack of a soul and remorse, uh, then you get the world economic form. You get this mentality. And this, unfortunately, I think is... Um, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for people to recognize because it's so, you know, we, we, we come from a place of goodness. We, we look at this and we think we would never do this to another, another person. And then we export that and project that onto these people. That's a dangerous thing to do. They don't think like we think they don't want what we want. The idea that well, I would never want to get rid of 90% of the human population. Therefore it can't be real. It has to be conspiracy theory. Be very careful with that line of thinking. You're right. We shouldn't be, you know, there shouldn't be somebody saying they want to get rid of 90% of the population, but there is, they're, they're everywhere and they're only hidden. I mean, the, their books are in public. You can read them. They're not hiding this. They're not going back and saying, oh, I was misquoted in my autobiography. They're not Charles Barkley. You know, they, they, they said it, they stand behind it and they mean it. So this, I think that in the future, if they have it their way, if, if, if we're un, unable to stop this or throw up enough of a roadblock, if it's up to them, they will eliminate a, a large percentage of the population. And those that are left will be controllable one way or the other, whether they are physically controlled through nanotechnology in that, or they're controlled through social credit scores, universal basic income, smart cities or whatever, or they're just mentally broken, they will be controlled. So we're at a, we're at a real pivotal time in humanity where this is not something you can be a spectator. So you have to get involved. You have to understand this. It's not going away unless we make it go away. So I think understanding the agenda behind the World Economic Forum and in general, Klaus Schwab in particular, is is important to everybody. Even if you're not really into this stuff, you need to know what's happening if for no other reason than to get yourself out of the way of it. Oh, it's a J. Yeah, I mean, I like that Noah Yuval Harari quote because, you know, one of the things we need to be able to do to not be duped by this is to pick out the basic level contradictions that occur. And one of those is this idea that, okay, so uh, Harari says there's no such thing as consciousness and free will. It doesn't exist. And then the other times he's talking, he's saying, oh, we're going to upload your consciousness to the computer. Your consciousness will be uploaded to the cloud. How are you going to upload something that you just said doesn't exist? Right. And so these are con men. These are people who sell you on something that's not real. What they're trying to sell you on is Malthusianism or a death cult mass death. So the whole idea is to just get rid of, like we said, like Charlie said, 90% of the people, right? Get rid of 90% of the people when the technology is advanced to the degree that, as Klaus wrote about in Fourth Industrial Revolution, <coughs> the AI can, can run things. So that's it. You, we don't need the humans anymore because we have AI. And uh, humans are kind of like livestock, they're cattle, and uh, we don't need them. 
so we can get rid of most of them because they're a you know problem to the planet they're hurting mother earth all this kind of stuff so it's all it's all giant huge level scams once we understand that that the people that are running this are like super high level con men Yes, they do have, uh, you know, technology. They do have a lot of money and power, which they print out of thin air, the money that is, right? Um, but it's like, imagine Jeffrey Dahmer or like one of the serial killers that we talked about, Sean, right? Imagine them, but uh, more functioning and more capable, right? The serial killers are kind of couldn't control themselves and they would go on these binges or whatever. But imagine being at that kind of a level, but you can control yourself and you just do it on a more wide scale. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with, jeffrey dahmers who can like manage and do ai and like algorithms right that's what we're talking about so th it's that level of psychopathy uh but but to do it at a functioning uh, level and i think once you're past the normal kinds of pleasures that most people seek out you are sort of locked into this mode of just control and power it's like a whole another type of drug uh and in my view it's ultimately kind of demonic i think there's like a spiritual um, power that motivates a lot of these people even if they don't know it and that's how the, the agenda is basically continuous contiguous over multiple decades and even a couple centuries you've got the same plan because it goes back to ultimately you could say plato's republic which is a it's the basis for technocracy plato said here's a way to set up a society run actually by a secret society so in plato's uh, republic and then his later writings it's it's a it's a society controlled by a secret group an elite group that intentionally tricks and lies to lies to everyone. It's called the noble lie. And then it's uh, the model for perfect mathematical style government is what uh, Plato called it. I think Plato also wrote that democracy is the road to tyranny. I think that's what we're on. So we're going over to the viewers questions and we've got Damien Barnett. Is anyone working to stop or break up the WEF, David? Well, I am. Uh, I don't know about anybody else. I, I know there's people all over the world that are working on it. I don't know if there's any like official groups. I mean, you just see these different pockets of resistance. Um, there, I think there are even good people in our institutions, in our governments, in our you know military intelligence uh, media. There's there, we're getting a lot of whistleblowers coming out that are talking about more of more of the elements of this stuff. Um, so we're seeing more information come out to the general public now. In the, la in the span of the last couple of years than I've personally ever seen studying any of this, which I find to be really interesting. I don't know if that's just a product of the times or if there's people really working behind the scenes to try to fight back. Um, but I know that, you know, look what we saw in Canada with the truckers. You know, I, I uh, did a documentary covering that, covered the whole thing. Uh, that's just a, a sign of average blue collar, hardworking, everyday people who never protest coming together to try to do something, to try to bring attention. It went on with the mandates, but everybody involved knew that this is really about a much bigger agenda. Um, you had the Dutch farmers resisting in the Netherlands that brought in the Polish and the Italians and all these other groups. You've had the French, you know, kicking back against Macron for some time now. Uh, so you see these like little mass movements coming up here and there. And then behind the scenes in the media sphere where we work in the sort of alt media which is now becoming the dominant media because the mainstream media is an utter embarrassment to themselves and their credibility is imploding at free fall speed into their own footprint as we speak. Uh, so we have now become the resistance because only shows like this are going to tell people the details about this without trying to fluff it up and, and protect these people like all the other mainstream outlets are going to do. Um, so that's the resistance. The person asking that question, 
I forget your, your name. It's a great question. You and I are pushing back. We're the ones resisting. Everybody here right now that's listening, that understands what's going on, we are the resistance. Nobody's coming to save us. We are the resistance. And that's why we have to continue, even if you feel like you're outnumbered, your friends and family are putting all this pressure on you. They don't want to believe you. They're stuck in the matrix. Ignore that. Just keep going. Keep speaking the truth. I'm a student of uh, people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Viktor Frankl and people who survived tyranny. And they've always said it. You know, it didn't take the masses to overthrow tyranny. It never did. It took small, motivated groups of people that never shut up and never stopped speaking the truth and fought back with every fiber of their being. And uh, by by nature's order itself, the lie collapses eventually. The, the noble lie is shown to not be so noble. And the truth always wins in the end. We're just hoping that there isn't too much collateral damage on the way. So let's let's do it. I'm in. Let's get some people together. Let's get some get some of our own groups together to resist this and try to bring back freedom uh, and humanity again to this planet. Thanks. So, Charlie, what hope do us little people have against a trillion dollar apparatus run by psychopaths? Well, there is some good news, and that is that it, it appears that they are moving faster than they intended to. They're making a lot of mistakes. Their schedule seems to be off a, a bit. Um, you don't, you know, with regard to the, the thing we're not allowed to talk about, um, you don't incentivize people with donuts and wrap, laps around Talladega Speedway if things are going well. Okay, so the messaging of the whole situation we've been locked down under, you know, for, for the last two years that's been an abject disaster as far as I'm concerned from, from, from a management standpoint, they thought that things would go a lot smoother. So we're already starting to see pockets of, you know, things to be uh, optimistic about uh, the, the push for central bank digital currencies to me is, is maybe the hill to die on because one, if that is established and, um, and, and you can, you can sort of thwart the World Economic Forum's plan. You, you, you kind of have to, you know, you have to focus on one component of it. You know, if you can, and, and if you focus on the CBDCs, the central bank programmable digital currencies, then, then you've, you've got to be really um, uh, diligent about making sure that that doesn't happen. Because if that does, they have the ability to set your currency to do all sorts of things like evaporate and turn into dust in your digital bank account because it's set, you know, hey, Sean, the 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 Christmas numbers, the Christmas spending numbers just came in and they were well below what we were expecting here. The White House has announced that that because of that, they're going to try and um, stimulate the economy a little bit more. And they've sent 30% of everybody's CBDCs to expire in the next 90 days. So you better start spending them because they're going to be worthless. That sort of stuff is insane, of course, but possible with central bank digital currencies. You say the wrong thing on social media, it vanishes. You're only allowed to shop on the company store. And that might be only the partner groups that work with the World Economic Forum. And there's plenty of them. And you probably have their products or you buy their cars or you know go to their stores right now. But what if you could only spend your universal basic income with those people? You know, so then that's a lot that locks out everybody else. All the mom and pop, the small and medium sized businesses wind up getting destroyed, you know, like what happened in 2020. Wink, wink. You know, so this whole thing, if you want to really try and um, strike at the core of what the World Economic Forum is doing, Pick central bank digital currencies, focus on that, make that untenable for them 
and you've really thrown a monkey wrench into their whole plans. I feel like they are on an accelerated schedule. It's 2030 is the benchmark. Agenda 2030, we've heard about all of that. They've talked about that. It really feels like 2025 to me. I don't I don't have any particular information that says that it's been reset, but it just feels like they're they're sort of on a schedule. Like somebody came into the boardroom and said, "You're moving too slow. Hurry up. I don't care if you have to give these dummies donuts." Do whatever you have to do or lottery tickets, but get them in here and get them to get on board with the program. And that has been behind schedule. So I think that there's some optimism. I don't want to give anyone false hope or I don't want to say that, you know, it's all done. You know, they're never going to be able to accomplish their plan. They they're on their way, but we it's not over yet. We still have a say in this. And one of the things we have to remember is that if we collectively decide, it doesn't have to be all of us, but a large enough percentage of people decide we will not comply, then it makes things a lot more difficult for them. So we have to remember that our compliance is necessary in this case. And if you have the ability to remove yourself or to just not comply with this, it's almost your duty and obligation to make things harder for these people. All right, over to Jay then as to how this can be stopped. Yeah, so there's a lot of hope. I mean, from the vantage point of uh, the last few years, I mean, they've had to really throw out things to try to speed things up because the, I think the agenda was definitely behind schedule. So that's why we saw what we see in the last three years was because they want to move things ahead. And it's correct that they, they usually do these things in 10-year actuary plans. And so they have certain plans by 2030, 2040, and 2050. And so when you read somebody like Jacques Attali, another one of these global elite uh, transhumanist people who helps plan this stuff, he says by 2040, you'll have the full rollout of the uh, tech um, Skynet system throughout the whole world. He calls it the global brain. He says by 2050, we'll have that hopefully population reduction. So you get these uh, decade uh, uh, actuaries that come out from them publicly and uh it's like uh tucker said on his uh, show covering cbdc's like if they get that it's over because then they can shut down anybody's commerce and you won't be able to buy you know your food right so this what's weird about that is that you can go back a hundred years ago where bertrand russell said they would roll out a system where you get weekly uh, central bank allotted credits and then if you don't spend them they go away that's because they don't want you having capital you can't attain and accrue savings and capital because that empowers you if you have your own assets and your own capital. That removes you from having any power. And that's the whole purpose of ESGs. That's the whole purpose of BlackRock and all their plan for social, their version of social credit score is to co have complete and total control. In fact, the head of the Bank for International Settlements, who Quigley identifies this as the central bank of central banks, it's the Federal Reserve of Federal Reserves. That big triple chin dude came out and said, literally said, we're going to have a CBDC that has a total programmable power by which we can shut down anybody who says anything against what we do. So if you don't recognize this, that it's a 100% total control system, total technocracy, total dystopia, then it's over. But people are recognizing it. And so it's like you've got you've got somebody like Tucker Carlson, the biggest uh, cable news program in the U.S., which basically just talks to boomers all day long, right? So they're sort of basic. They're ba they're just now waking up to like what people in the alt media have been saying for a long time. Is it too late? I don't know. I hope not. But if we can get people like they're just now waking up, which is a good thing. Right. So but we got to go. We got it. We have to move quicker <laughs> on our side because <clears throat> they're already beginning to roll this out. And if uh, and if we wait another 10 years to wake up to the next phase, 
then it's going to be too late. David, what's the role of Elon Musk in all of this? And isn't he on the same page as Klaus Schwab when it comes to chips in the brain? Well, this is a dicey one. Uh, it's I know this is a lot of contention in the community about this. And good, we need to have these discussions. Nobody knows. Nobody's behind the curtain. But I'm very curious as to why the sudden shift in uh, a lot of things that he's been doing. And so um, regardless of ultimately whose side he's on, maybe he's just on his own side. I don't know. But um, he has made way on Twitter for a much more free speech platform than before it's not perfect but you know he's only just been taken over in a recent period of time there he's reinstalling a lot of the doctors that got censored over the past while a lot of accounts are coming back which is just absolutely terrifying uh the people who were originally controlling twitter and the media and the whole thing because the minute you have any kind of free speech on massive platforms like twitter you can now have what we're supposed to have in a free society, which is civil discourse and public debate and discussion and the ability for people like me to go on there and post information that contradicts the mainstream narrative. So I'm grateful for that. I, I, regardless of that, one thing about the chips in brains is, uh, you know, at this phase, that is something that is being sold as, oh, it's just going to be an optional thing to for health applications and all of that. Um, in the bigger agenda of the whole transhumanist thing we just discussed, I don't fully trust that as being the only application for this technology. There's never going to be any chips put in my brain. I don't know if, if it's that Elon is a part of that agenda or if it's simply a disagreement that we would have with him where he thinks, and he said this openly many times, that what he knows about the level of AI and technology that they want to bring in, he believes that the only way to maintain any level of humanity and stop it in any way is to adopt a certain amount of that technology uh, in order to be able to compete with it or otherwise will be completely eliminated. I personally disagree with that. But again, I'm not privy to the information that he might have. And again, we don't really know. And there's a big debate about that. But I, I just can comment on he I think he's a central figure regardless. Um, some people theorize that he went rogue from some of his original uh, positions or groups that he was associated with. And he's now sort of rebelling against that and working to expose this. Um, his tweets have been very, very interesting lately, talking about a lot of stuff that people like us talk about. So is this just him playing on our side and it's a big manipulation game? Or are there le legitimate people that were originally a part of the plan, uh, the program, and they woke up and are like, hey, I, I don't want this either. And maybe he's going on his own learning curve. It's all speculation, man. But in the end, I'm just glad that my Twitter is back and more of my buddies are coming back and we are launching an all-out assault on the lies and the scams on Twitter. And I think it's making an impact because what I'm monitoring is there's a lot of accounts and a lot of people that I was following that were pretty much asleep to a lot of the bigger scams that are now getting access to information they couldn't see before and are starting to change their tune and they're reaching a big audience of people that follow them. So there's pros and cons to all of it. Um, I will let people debate whether they think Elon is a black hat, a white hat, a gray hat, or some other hat, a pink hat, I don't know. But uh, in the end, I think everybody is serving a purpose in this, both for good and bad in the end. And this is a bigger cosmic war than we can possibly imagine. Well said, David. I totally agree. And I can see the hamster wheels going in Charlie's head. <laughs> he's, he's <got laughs> well, well, he, he did come out and say that we need to be having more kids. And that was weird. 
You know, that, that was yeah, like that we need goes, more people. Yeah. Yeah. That goes against the core tenets of the World Economic Forum. Um, so you go, oh, I like that, you know, and then then you go, but what's with all the brain chips and what's with the DARPA connections and the DOD and the ex steganography and the, you know, and all the in the satanic shit you're wearing when you go to the Met Gala ball. And you know what I mean? And there's there's all these things. And so. It's really he could have been trolling, just saying. Eye covering and all that <laughs> stuff, you know. And, and so, I, I'm I'm always I'm always very hesitant when they produce a savior figure that comes in. And I, look, and I, and let's be let's be real here. You don't get to, um, you know, you're allowed to operate your businesses when your businesses are SpaceX, which is doing almost entirely business with the United States government. And your other business is Tesla, which is taking on large, massive subsidies from the government and this push towards electric vehicles and all of this. So you are dependent on the government. You have you have deals with the D Department of Defense. You have DARPA, uh, long, long working relationship with DARPA. These are all really, really bad signs, right? These are the things that I go automatic disqualification. And then he buys Twitter. And then he starts to bring some voices back that had been silenced for a while. And you go, I like that. You know, that's okay. Um, I don't know that I entirely trust this guy, but I'll take a win where you can get it. And But then you go, well, he's not bringing all the voices back. I'd like to hear this guy. And I'd like to hear that. Why did this person go away? And, you know, so, so there's, there's, we can, we can find plenty of, of faults with, with this. And, and, and again, when, when the media, and I, my, I'll tell you my biggest enemy, the enemy of humanity, in my opinion, is the mainstream media. And when the mainstream media starts talking about him in a way that's positive, you go, Oh, well, I, I get suspicious when they start uh, going after him due to his Twitter thing. Then I think, well, he might now, now he's, he's pissing off the right crowd. So that I, I look forward to, I, We'll have to see where things go. I would be very hesitant to tr say I trust Elon Musk. I can I can also say I don't trust him while still acknowledging that he's done some things that 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 are you know beneficial. But um, but but again, I think that uh, I mean, look, I'm sure Jay can do a whole deep dive on the the symbolic nature of the X uh, steganography component and why all of his. His X.com that he started, the banking, Tesla, SpaceX, you know, all these things. He's going to put everything under the X uh, moniker of, a, you know, the app for all things. And, uh, you know, there, there's some there's some history to that to that um, to that letter as well. So um, I'm very suspicious, of course, but I'm suspicious about everybody. So that doesn't that doesn't really mean anything. I'm curious about that, Jay. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I hate to be sort of boring here, but I don't really have much of an opinion on the whole must thing. Um, I'm not trying to be a boring centrist either. I just really don't. Uh, I mean, I can't know anybody's motives. So certainly I think anybody in those kinds of positions we should be suspicious of. Everybody knows about the the brain chips and the DARPA stuff. And, but at the same time, I like that he's doing things that uh, allow for at least a little bit more freedom. Is that a long-term trap? Could be. Um, so, but, but I, <clears throat> you know, I, I always get asked, what do you think about, uh, yay? What do you think about Putin? What do you think about Elon Musk? And it's like, I, I don't really care about what, <clears throat> um, I, I don't, I don't know people's motives. I can't know that I can just judge by the actions. And we look at people's actions and not the things that they say. I think we have to just have a healthy suspicion and, uh, you know, be happy for the positive things that they do. That's, that's my only thought. 
So we've got a question from Jake Forder. AI has already colonized popular music. What next? Your mind? <laughs> you? That's what Klaus says. We're gonna change the Great Reset is not just gonna change your government, it's going to change you, he says. So <laughs> take him serious. I mean, they're out there just telling you straight up what it's gonna do. Uh, we've had people like Ray Kurzweil and many of these other transhumanists talking about AI. It's been written about forever. I almost have a part of myself that thinks that a lot of this is just a pipe dream, that they're not actually going to be able to achieve the big, bold claims of uploading your consciousness and the whole day. I think that's just like, I think they're part of a cult, to be honest with you, at the end of the day. They're, it's like a religion that nobody knows about. It's a private worship uh, that a lot of these people are involved in. And I've been tracking this back to, you know, some of the, a lot of people don't know, but like the concept of artificial intelligence or even the Frankenstein concept uh, goes all the way back to like Babylonian kings and like ancient, uh, you know, in Egypt, even the word tech technology comes from a, a god, god, goddess worship uh, cult from ancient Egypt. T-E-K was the original way to spell it. And it's this idea of transcending nature and controlling nature and uh, being the sort of manager of nature in a way. And maybe not in a benign sense where you're like a gardener, but maybe you're just like what these globalists think, where you're going to use technology to overtake humanity. So AI um, is, you know, think about it, artificial intelligence. In a way, there's also a subliminal thing I could mention about this in terms of the way they communicate a lot of this. Um, they're, they're speaking to your subconscious mind. They're speaking to your sort of atavistic brain um, where they say things like, artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence over and over again. And you think computers and Skynet and all of that, which it is, but on another symbolic level, they're talking about the kind of intelligence that they want you to have right now with your physical brain. Uh, think about all these MK Ultra experiments and the Ash experiments and the Milgram experiments and all this stuff that they've put billions and in, in billions in for decades trying to study how you tick on a psychological and emotional level so they can manipulate you. Um, and so artificial intelligence is something that they're creating through all of this propaganda, fake news media, uh, the matrix, if you will, artificial intelligence already exists in your mind. It's just not put in with computer chips just yet. It's put in with ideas that, uh, influence you to think in ways and act in ways that you otherwise wouldn't. I mean, we just got a big screen test of this over the past three years, didn't we? Artificial intelligence ruled the world for the last three years, uh, which was based in fear. Um, and so that's one aspect. The other thing, um, even with all this climate stuff, just really quick, uh, think about all this talk we got from Al Gore and all these other people, cause it's all connected to the same in the end where they were talking about global warming and, uh, you know, climate change. Again, we think the literal explanation of that is what they're talking about, but these people are occultists at the end of the day, or at least the people writing the script are. Um, and they know that when they say things like climate change, they're subliminally trying to influence the changing of the climate of your mind and your thinking. That's the climate they're changing. They colonize the world by colonizing the mind because it's a very simple formula. And I'll wrap with this. What's the big conspiracy? It's the conspiracy to control land, resources, and wealth. And if you want to control land, resources, and wealth, you need to control the people that live on that land, that live near those resources, and that create that wealth. So colonizing the mind with artificial intelligence and climate change, the climate of your consciousness and your psyche, 
that's the first steps. And then later they want to actually put the physical robotic stuff into you. So that's the, that's the basic breakdown. All right. Over to Charlie and Jay. We've got about two minutes each left guys before we bring the next guest in. Sure. Uh, well, I have some good news. I talked to Alex Cranier, my buddy who runs a hedge fund over in Monte Carlo, and uh, and he had been he had worked in the artificial intelligence space, and he said his estimation is that eighty percent of what they say it will do will never come to pass. That it's that he has seen, um, he knows from his experience that that the majority the the amount of computing power needed to d differentiate between a balloon blowing across the street and a girl running out across the you know in across the street. Is, is so much um, needed, so much more power than we currently have or that we will have in, for, in the near future. So he set my mind at ease. I hope he's right. But I'll tell you this, what I do know about artificial intelligence from the World Economic Forum standpoint is that when they put, they broke out their fourth industrial revolution, they made a couple core um, silos. And in that they put artificial intelligence in two different versions, two different silos. The first was called fusing technologies. And it included biotech, virtual reality slash augmented reality, quantum computing, advanced materials, neuroscience, blockchain, and artificial intelligence. That was one of them. But then they had a more devious silo called security and conflict. And inside that, they had drones, space, geopolitics, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. So they're under, they've got it going in two different directions, one as a component of weaponry and one as a component of fusing technologies into a, a new version of neuroscience. So um they're going to they they plan to use it a couple different ways. And, and again, I hope Alex is correct in his assessment that it it won't be as powerful as they say it will be, but I guess um that's for us to find out. All right, we've actually run out of time. So, Jay, can you just tell the viewers where they can find you and support you, please? Yeah, you can go to jaysanalysis.com or you can follow me here on YouTube uh, under my name, Jay Dyer, and all the other uh, same outlets. And I usually host the fourth hour of uh, Alex Jones on uh, Friday. All right, David, where can the viewers find and support you, please? Thanks a lot. This has been one of the best conversations I've had in a while. Let's thank you so much to all of you for doing this work. You can get me at dwtruthwarrior.com. That's the main site. It'll lead you to all the projects that I'm in. If you want to see the documentary series that I'm working on, you can watch it for free. Uh, it's up on all the alt platforms, and but you can get it all at cultofthemedics.com. It's a big discussion about the health, the, the whole thing, the Great Reset, all this stuff. And then, uh, yeah, those are the best places to find me. Macro, macro aggressions goes out uh, twice weekly as a podcast in audio format and in video format on band.video rockfin odyssey vigilante.tv you can follow me on twitter at macro aggressions and the website is the octopus of global control.com thanks sean david charlie jay it's been an honor to host all you guys together this evening it's been phenomenal the chat has been buzzing such powerful speakers, so well researched. You guys are like the tip of the spear exposing this stuff. So we salute you and can't wait to see you again. So thank you very much, everybody. Cheers. And for the viewers, all of the guests' links are in the description box below this video. So please go down and check those out. And we're going to be moving over to Madeline McCann case now. And we're going to bring in Stephen. Good evening gonna, again. 
Yeah, cheers. I'm going to bring in the other guests and pop out. See you soon. Good evening, you two. How are you? Great. Great. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. Uh, Maybe you could just take a moment just to introduce yourselves for our uh, listeners and viewers. Sure. Uh, My name is Chris, and this is my wife, Amy, and we are the hosts of True Crime Recaps. Excellent. So yeah, that's a, a YouTube channel uh, covering a, a, you know a f- far-reaching uh, criminal cases from from what I've seen. Maybe, maybe we could start with um, talking about how true crime has become such a big deal in the last several years. It seems like everyone's got a true crime itch that needs to be itched, and people seem very fascinated with various podcasts. Which to me, on the on the outside of it, you wouldn't think because it's it's obviously involves a lot of gory real life details. It can be quite grim at times, but people don't seem to be able to get enough of the uh, of the genre. Maybe you could uh, explain some of the psychology behind that for me. I'll take this. That's a- <laughs> I'm validated. I'm like, I love it. I mean, it's sickening to say I love it, but my God, it's fascinating. Personally, for me, I, I mean, I love the mystery of it, the trying to determine like who did it, what happened exactly, the puzzle of it. But a lot of women that I've talked that I talk to, my age and like younger, older, have all said they really like true crime for the pure, like for the tips in a way to understand, oh, maybe I shouldn't get in that car with that hot stranger that's wearing a cast because he could be the next Ted Bundy, you know, something like that, that they've said, it's honestly tells you what not to do. It tells you like, hey, what's possible? Hey, that neighbor is not just a creeper. He's also a total serial killer with five girls in his basement. You know what I mean? So I think there's a lot of people that that do look at it like that not just you know entertainment as a cautionary tale yeah it's a cautionary tale because it it also just feels like the more you delve into it the more you realize how much of it there is one of one of the things people say to me all the time is wow you probably never run out of material you know as bad as it is to say but when you start to see these circumstances and all of the stories that are out there throughout the decades it does it, it it makes you more cautious in your life you know? yeah yeah i think I, I think i heard someone once say they used to listen along to true crime podcast to try and you know get see how far they could get before they they would imagine they'd also be murdered in the same way as the victim because sometimes they'd be like ah i wouldn't have done that i wouldn't have yeah, left my yeah. power unlocked kind of thing see how almost play it as a game and it's it kind of it's there's this line isn't it between consuming it as entertainment and also trying to understand that these are real people and these are these are you know real things people have gone through with surviving family members and things like that how much how much does that cross your mind when you're making your content all the time especially with this with the the recent idaho murders case um in moscow idaho we're actually from that area and those people you know just to hear the details about where it happened what happened it just really brings it home, literally, that you're just, my God. You, you think about that place that you know, that happened there. That just seems so incredible. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I can imagine that's surreal. And I, I we'll be talking plenty about the um, Idaho-Moscow case uh, shortly. But you also provided us some uh, coverage and commentary on the Madeleine McCann case, which is a massive uh, UK-centric issue. The child's obviously from the UK, as the parents are. This was a 
uh, a crime that occurred in Europe, in Portugal, and it's been covered across the pond by you guys. What first, uh, you know, when did this first land on your radar? What made you interested in this case? This was definitely something like ever since it happened, it's been just shocking and prevalent everywhere. Like you said, globally, just because the family just seems like every family, you know, they're on a vacation. They're just going to dinner. They're not that far away. A lot of parents make this decision. I know that's many people have been like, that's a terrible decision. And obviously they've regretted it every day since. But a lot of parents make that decision to go and leave the kids and just check on them frequently. And they're having a good time with and their friends. And they're trying to have it all. And you feel safe in a yeah. in a resort like yeah. that. A lot of these places you go to different countries to visit, sometimes you end up staying in the resort. And you know you don't have to leave if you don't want to. It's very contained. It's, a, it's like a small gated community. So you do feel sort of, there's a maybe maybe a little bit of a false sense of security there, you know? Well, yeah, clearly in this in, case. In this for case, sure. for sure, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I, there's this sort of sense that people have uh, when I speak about this case, that a lot of time was perhaps wasted pointing the finger at the parents when there are other suspects, more credible leads in the grass. It seems like the, the general consensus, certainly in, in England where I am, is that the Portuguese police didn't do a particularly thorough and good job because a lot of time was spent uh, pointing fingers at the parents. What What's your feeling on that issue? Well, I, I, I mean, I think that, I think this is a common problem. Um, I know that, that that sentiment has been extended to the officials in, in, in North Idaho as well. Um, I think the tune's changing a little bit on that, on that feeling, but um you know, I think in the absence of any real evidence, leads, you, you know, you, you kind of come down to, well, who, who could this person be? And it is, it can be family members a lot of the time. So yeah. it's not, it's, and, and, and there's a lot of pressure as well when it, especially on a case that's this international, this well-known, um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to lay any blame or fault on the Portuguese authorities, but I do, I, maybe I, I can understand why it's frustrating for people when uh, nothing feels like it's being done. And, and then I would also at the same time not really fault them for, for looking at the parents as a, as a, but possibly... I think it's been said that maybe if they were going to look at the parents, it was something that maybe they could have done right away as maybe a first step rather than a tenth step. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it seems like a lot of interest in this uh, case, certainly in the UK, seemed to dissipate quite a bit. I think I read something along the lines of 2022, I think was the first year that the parents didn't do their yearly appeal more information it seems like momentum was being lost however a person who's been on the radar for quite some time as a potential suspect uh christian bruckner i believe uh it looks like there has been some movement on that score it looks like he will be facing some uh, official charges shortly is there anything you can tell me about this individual and the the uh pending charges yeah well right now um currently he's serving a seven-year prison sentence for uh raping a 72-year-old American woman who's in Portugal. 
Uh, this, I believe this happened in the mid early 2000s. And that crime went unanswered for a long time until they found a trove of files on thumb drives and different hard drives and things like that in his, it, on a property that he uh, stayed at. And they found the, um, a video that showed him committing this crime. So he's in, in prison right now for that. So, you know, I, I say that to say this, that he's a known sex offender and, um, and he is a suspect because he was in, he was living in a house just a mile away from the resort at the time. And they also have the evidence that his phone, his cell phone pinged in the area at the time of the, of the disappearance. So I believe that they have, um, I believe that they're, they're, they've accused him partially just because he's, he, he, it's a, it's a possibility. He fits the, um, the profile and, but they also just want to make sure that the, you know, there's also the, the instance of time that's running out. The statute could, could, uh, could expire. So that I think has been stopped, but I think too, it's interesting to see that the German prosecutor is very, very, very sure that they have the evidence they need that they can charge him, but he's been named a suspect, as you know, for years now, and they have never charged him. But like, you like you've, you already know they are, they're saying they're going to charge him. This is the year, any day now, any second now they're going to charge him. So I have to wonder what kind of evidence did they, what, what did they have to first accuse him? And then why didn't they charge him? Why are they only now charging him? Literally, I think three years later, almost three years later, from they accused him in 2020. And here we are in 2023. I have read, now I don't know if this is just speculation or this like a leaked source that they have fibers from her pajamas found in his van that they managed to somehow like get the van back. But again, that might just be speculation and, and Maybe they found more video. Maybe they found more photos. It's very unclear why they haven't charged him yet, but. I think part of the reason is the, um, is understanding who made the phone call that placed his cell phone at the scene of the crime. That, that seems to be a big piece of evidence. The, uh, the German prosecutor says they are sure that Christian Bruckner killed Madeline McCann and, and that he has, that they have evidence, not forensic evidence, but other evidence. But he does say that the, the a missing piece is that, that who made that phone call because it came from a prepaid cell phone. So they can't, it's a very difficult thing to figure out, but I feel that it's something pretty important for them to have in order to complete the circle to make the charge. Sorry, so just to um, get some clarification on the, the phone aspect of it, are we, did, are we saying that he received a phone call and they need to figure out, figure out who rang him or he made a phone call? What, what details there? No, what? no, he, he received a phone call. Received right, and, then... a phone call and, and they are able to put the cell phone, they're able to place the phone in the area at the time of the crime, but was was he there did he answer the phone you know that's what that's what they're trying to understand
that's interesting because there's a lot of discussion as well. I mean, this is this is the problem we fall into when um, there's an open case with these lots of speculation, like you've said, and uh, mystery and often conspiracy. But there's a lot of discussion about the, the potential for him to have been some sort of trafficker in that sense and working within a larger group or for other individuals. That's, I'm like, the yeah. stone call thing is so interesting to me because I hadn't, I'm not as, as up on this case as he is, so I'm, I'm learning a lot here too. But I think it's interesting that if the German prosecutor says, no, he was not the middleman, he didn't, because I completely what you're saying, that there's been a lot of speculation that she was a kidnap for, for on request, you know, like somebody mm. is for that type of child. But they say, no, he was the one that killed Easy. her and that she was gone like fairly quickly after she was after she disappeared from what i understand but so i wonder why they're so curious about a phone call that would say that would like lend more support to that theory about a kidnap for hire but interesting i mean for crying out loud just charge the guy already let's get more details <laughs> years so it i mean every day i feel like i wake up and google I'm like madeline what happened with that and still just nothing 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 so they do say they have the evidence and that they they're sure of it. So, and, uh, I don't know if you if you know this or anything. If we've been told, but when can we expect to be presented with this information or an official charge being made? If they will give a date, just yesterday I heard that th that it was within days. So right. I would expect maybe by the end of this week, if not early next week. But again, what what's the holdup over there, people? Yeah. Come on. That, that so, it's yeah it's interesting and whatever is holding it up must be like you say a key piece but it's, yeah who knows we'll wait and see so we'll definitely keep an eye on that see how it unfolds obviously there's a massive amount of public interest in this case and i'm, I'm sure you guys would be uh interesting in following up on your channel when when the information's in but moving closer to home and uh, as we uh referenced at the start of this conversation the the uh killings that took place uh uh, nearer to you in Idaho, Moscow. Uh, maybe you could just give a, a brief outline of the specifics there in terms of how many, you know, the location, who these people were, uh, and what happened to them. Yeah, absolutely. On November 13th, 2022, a 911 call was made from an off campus house in Moscow, Idaho, that is like northern Idaho. And the caller reported an unconscious person at the house very unclear language, but we haven't gotten any more clarification on that specifically. The police arrived to see a lot of other people that didn't live in the house there, as well as two roommates that did live there. And four roommate, four people that, three of them were roommates that lived in the house and one was a boyfriend. So could you got their names right? Yeah. So go ahead. Oh, the names of the, of the victims, uh, Kaylee Gonsalves, uh, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal and Ethan Chapin. Uh, Zana and Ethan were a couple. Um, and that's why I believe it's, it's, it's understood that that's why Ethan was in the house. Right. So they were, had all been stabbed to death. What's very unclear is why the roommates didn't know that they'd been stabbed to death. The police later called the scene sloppy, messy, bloodbath. I mean, we, I'm sure we've all seen the horrifying photos of the blood actually leaking from the house, from the outside of the house. Just, just a monstrous act. Unbelievable, but the fact that they didn't know that the roommates had been stabbed seemed to suggest that their doors were closed and or locked. Something, again, that we haven't had clarification about yet because a lot of this information has been kept close to the vest this entire time until they've made the arrest and even after the probable cause affidavit hasn't yet been released. 
So we're guessing on a lot of this stuff, but um, when they did find these four brutal murders, the very first thing they did was start, you know, looking at, is, was it the roommates? They were in the house surviving roommates on the very first floor. They were cleared right away. People around them, there was a lot of footage coming in from local businesses and parties that the kids had been to earlier that night. They're all in their tw early 20s and a lot of speculation about people around them, men talking to them, was one or more of them targeted. But right away, if you remember, the Moscow, the Idaho police said, this is a crime of passion. Everybody be cool. It's totally fine. Because the main source of employment, the, the entire town is built around this college, the University, the University yeah. of Idaho. They didn't and want everybody. They didn't want to scare everybody. Exactly. So like, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. And then, you know, a couple of days like the later, mayor from right. Jaws. Yeah. And yeah, they're like, yeah, well, right. maybe everything's not fine. Maybe you should start locking your doors. And people are like, what? You're killing us. Well, so, right away, right away, people were suspect of that council in the yeah. first place. You know, the, the look, it was, a, it was a targeted attack. So we don't have anybody. We don't have a suspect, but don't worry. You're safe. I mean, yeah. It, 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 and, and people didn't really buy that very easily either it's been strange so all along then they kind of changed from well it wasn't the people who were targeted it was the house which is interesting in light of the arrest that they've made now so everything that they've said up to this point we kind of look at with a new eye and be like well why did they say that why did they mean that does that have anything to do with the evidence that they have against him or you know the kind of prosecution that they're planning to mount but in any case, so these four have been said the murder weapon was not found. They believe it to be like a large K-bar knife, like a Rambo-style knife, fixed blade, a military issue with the, the hand guard. So if you're holding it, there's a guard here so that you can't cut your own your hand on your own knife in a combat situation. Okay. So that's the kind of like serious weapon they've been looking for and haven't been able to find. And again, who knows if they found it in... Brian Koberger, their suspects, thinks they've just searched this place and they haven't released any kind of information on what they found, if anything. But, I mean, it's been seven weeks uh, uh, before his arrest, from the arrest to the murders, and anything could have happened to that knife in the meantime. But it's an interesting case, certainly one that everybody is following very closely around that area and throughout the U.S. And throughout the country, yeah. Yeah, yeah and... Um... In terms of this idea of the like the murder weapon being a quote unquote like Rambo knife, I mean, what what are the laws in the in the state about carrying that or concealing that on your person? Can somebody just have a blade on their person legal? I mean, is, is this something that's common, or is this a is it does this like sort of point to the fact that this person's got a weapon and this is premeditated? He's took that weapon out with the explicit um, desire to cause harm. Well, I'm so glad you asked because specifically it's interesting in this state because Idaho is a very, it's hunting, it's outdoorsy, yeah. you're fishing, you're doing all the things that you would, that you, I, would, I, you would probably use a knife like that for. Uh, yeah, you could, I, I wouldn't, I can't imagine there being any law against owning one and carrying one in, in the state of Idaho outside of age, you know, maybe, maybe. Right. You know, if you're under 16, 14, something like that, um, that's the only. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm speculating on that. I don't know that for sure, but I'm, I'm I would be very surprised. One thing though that's to understand is that they're not readily available. Like you can't just go into like any kind of store and buy one. They 
the cops were asking around like the sporting goods stores, did you sell any of these? Do you have any of these for sale? And they seem to be saying, no, 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 we don't have them. We didn't sell one. We don't remember. We don't have anything. They even had to go to the National Guard. Are you familiar with that? The National Guard Yeah. at the school. It's called the ROTC program, students in that program. And I believe that they had one or a few, whatever, on display there. They used them in some way or maybe for a training or to show like a demonstration. And they even asked them, like, are all your knives present and accounted for? Like, where did this knife come from seems to be one of the questions. So who knows? Maybe that's part of the evidence that they have that they were able to trace a purchase or something back to this person, maybe made in Pennsylvania or one of the many outdoory states around Idaho. I mean, the yeah. entire country, that part the of the country the is very like, yeah. sure, everybody's got a army surplus. An army surplus store is, would yeah. have it. Huh. And uh, in terms of where the the suspect who's now been arrested was picked up from in in the state of pennsylvania did you say is that right how far is that from the scene of the crime 2500 miles yeah right (laughs) he was from there originally he he was in washington state actually which is only eight miles across the border of idaho they're right next to each other and he's there at washington state university studying to be for his doctorate degree in criminology, which is of course like the big bizarre kicker in this case that the guy was literally focused on studying criminal minds, specifically violent offenders, those serial killers, murderers, rapists, like the really bad ones. Mm -hmm. And that's really what he was, his focus was on like forensic psychology, forensics, criminology, criminal justice. And he had just moved there in August to start the fall semester. So he hadn't been there very long uh, from Pennsylvania, which is, I guess, why his, I'm like, we're just full of information. So stop me if, <laughs> if you know you have questions before I continue to ramble on. But his father apparently had flown out from Pennsylvania to meet up with his son and drive back with him to Pennsylvania for the holidays. So that was a pre-planned trip that they they've said that was planned before he left so it wasn't necessarily like a get out of town you know run for the hills type of a move but it's interesting that he he did just drive there and back not not long before and not long necessarily after the murders one thing though speaking of the car that has come out one of the biggest deals of course how they found him was his car, that white Hyundai Elantra, that they caught it on, you know, doorbell cams and surveillance footage from local businesses in this area. They're calling the scene of the crime around the same time, speeding away. Doesn't look good for whoever was driving that, but not necessarily a bad thing, a smoking car, if you will, but (laughs) that's how they found him based on that and his genetic DNA, apparently, that they found on at the crime scene and then ran through publicly available databases like Ancestry, like 23andMe, to chase that back from a distant relative to him. This is what's been speculated, of course, from local you know, sources close to the investigation, law sources to various media outlets. So we can assume 99% this is correct, using that car as a guide. So they're they're trying to find somebody close to the area. They're trying to find somebody who maybe has drives that car. And what do you know? They land on Brian's name. And meanwhile, he's already in Pennsylvania. So they now they have to work with different jurisdictions, which is kind of what's making me anyway say, well, they must have something good because if they're going to try and go out, you know, famously 
jurisdictions don't like to work with each other. I mean, that's kind of always the case in true crime where you hear about something happening and you have to wonder if Brian thought this too, where something happens in one state, the killer lives and is, you know, spends his time in another state and never the two will meet that the two jurisdictions don't talk. But in this case, they sure did. These, these police officers in Moscow, Idaho, you have to commend them. It's a small town. They haven't had a murder there for seven years before this. And that was a very, it was solved like that. It was a very obvious, like who done it. So they reached out to the FBI. They reached out to the state police. They were like talking with Washington state police. They were talking with Canada, Canada, border guards in Mexico. Like they were definitely all over it. So it was, it's pretty amazing to see that they were able to get a suspect in a relatively short amount of time. And it's, yeah, especially since all the heat they took at the beginning. Yeah. 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 When, when something as large scale and horrific as that happens, people want results very quickly. Yeah. So, I mean, I believe as well, I think you alluded to this, I've actually covered it in your, in your video on this topic that uh, an animal was found mutilated and killed not far from the crime scene as well. Is, Is there any reason to believe this is connected? Well, the police at the time said no, but again, like you kind of look back and think, gee, do you, is this, is this his first offense? If he is guilty, of course he has the, you know, innocent until proven guilty, but if he is proven to be guilty, was this his first offense? I mean, do you go out and murder four college students on your first go around? My God. So a lot of people have thought, well, maybe it was a practice run that the poor dog who was found just brutally skinned and butchered miles away from the murder house from the scene of the crime just weeks before i mean it just seemed with the same type of weapon they believe it just seems like to be a huge coincidence but that is what the police have said in the past that it is just a coincidence, it's just a coincidence yeah. but yeah and i, I, and I think there's always this truism isn't there i think we're always told and i've never actually looked this up myself but there's always this uh, received wisdom that uh, people who are serial killers or potential murderers often start out with animals and, and things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. I, they call it the triad word, animal cruelty, bedwetting at a later age than you know normal, and setting fires are the three things that they have found kind of consistent across serial killers. That's insane. But the bedwetting thing, I will admit, was somewhat of a curveball. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, that's a big yeah, red flag. That is, that is that's a little, <laughs> yeah. That so, is interesting. when I babysit like my little niece, I'm like, please don't be wet in the bed. <laughs> <laughs> She's fine. She's fine. Red flag, <laughs> red flag. <laughs> Still normal to do it occasionally at the age of 38, though, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, what what other things do we have? I mean, you mentioned a uh, ring doorbells, that things like that. Uh, is there anything to your knowledge that other than the car has uh, we've got images of this particular suspect in the vicinity on on the night? Because it seems like we we live in a time now where it's very difficult to stroll more than ten yards without being picked up by some sort of CCTV footage. I mean, what I was amazed to see on one of the video the video you produced that the, one of the local food stands had a live streaming uh video feed uh, that the some of the victims visited just before so do we have any th- other piece of information regarding this suspect video wise not necessarily uh not that's been released do you no i mean just as far as you know there's there's a little bit of video of him getting pulled over by the 
by the cops on his way home with his dad to Pennsylvania, you know, that they, they've been showing now. I mean, that doesn't, that's not incriminating or anything. It's just video of him. Was that sort of a routine stop, perhaps? Or were they speeding? Was there something? I think he was speeding. Yeah. They right. Twice. They stopped twice. Yeah. One for speeding and one just immediately after for tailgating. Both times he was behind the wheel. So he really, really wanted to get home. Not a safe driver. But, right. but yeah, it's, they've also thought that, and again, this is one of those law enforcement sources have said things that they have cell data putting him near the group of victims in the weeks ahead of the murders, which does not look good. Yeah. So for sure, that's going to be something if that is accurate and exactly what that means, like how close he was and how often and, you know, what times that's certainly going to be something, but not to jump around too much, but that kind of brings me back to what the cops had said at the very beginning when they were like, well, the people were targeted. No, no, it was the house. Well, maybe it was both. They kind of have gone back and forth, which makes you wonder, well, was it the house? Some people have said, this may be a rumor that's already been refuted. So I don't necessarily want to put this out there as fact, but that there might be some connection to a person or persons that lived in the area around the house that Brian might have a connection to them which would have brought him into that vicinity of the house. Oh, okay. Thought, hey, there's a lot of good looking young people that live in this house that come over here. They have a lot of parties. It's the area around it. Is, it's not an isolated area. There are houses and apartment buildings and, you know, kind of small rentals all around the house. It's in a very busy area. It's almost right across the street from a fraternity, from the one of the fraternities of the university. It's like with, then walking distance of the campus. I mean, it is like right in the middle of everything. So it wouldn't be hard to kind of observe the house. There's a parking lot right behind it that's for an apartment building. It's kind of like off on the other side. So there's, again, just so many people around in so many places to kind of just sit and watch and not be observed. Not it's be nothing noticed. but trees. And it, yeah, it just would not be hard to observe people coming in or out of that house if the house indeed was targeted and not necessarily the people it's just it's a it's very there's so many unknowns that and that there are also quite a few knowns for a case where the probable cause affidavit hasn't been released yet which is probably why the judge issued a gag order last night on pro the police and other people involved with this case to just stop talking to the media because it seems like quite a bit of it seems to have been leaked already without even you know officially been released so just to pick up on that then i mean it the reason that maybe the police i mean what maybe the reason the police aren't particularly forthcoming with information could that be because they've got a suspect in their sights and they want to keep everything in their favor in terms of pursuing that could it be a case of they're trying to sort of uh, gloss over some incredibly sloppy work at the start of the investigation what, what's your instinct Absolutely. Everything that I've heard and read, and you tell me if you think differently, is that they've just been keeping everything close to the best because they kind of did already have an idea. It sounds like from very early on that they kind of had an idea of where they, where they were going with this and what they could do with it as far as maybe getting the genetic DNA samples and all of that. And so they've kind of just been working with a singular purpose and not and trying not to pay any attention to the people around, you know, being like, what's being, going on? Is this a cold case? because they really did sounds like they worked methodically and and moved forward with a lot of partnerships and help to get to this point so you have to assume that whatever they have 
and they maybe didn't want to spook him. Maybe they didn't want to send him running off to Canada. I mean, obviously that makes everything harder. So whatever, whatever they did, they were doing it right. I mean, just the fact that they were able to arrest a suspect, a random person from what we understand, the relationship with these victims is not known exactly, but we know just based on the fact that none of the family members knew him, the surviving roommates, they're not, they don't believe they made a statement that they recognized him. So this isn't somebody that was necessarily part of their circle in any way. Um, so, I mean, you know, yeah, just from know. like Dateline, you can tell that like just a random person, it's almost frighteningly easy that it, how easy it is to get away with killing a random person if you didn't leave any evidence behind, like, like their killer, we have to assume, believed that he didn't leave any evidence. So it's pretty impressive. It's just amazing. I suppose what's, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's strange because I suppose what's particularly frustrating to people is, is not always um, the who. Sometimes we always have a who. It's the why that I think really gets under people's skin. Exactly. And as you covered in your video, um, and as we, you know, there was no evidence of any sort of sexual motive or sexual assault on, on the victims. So that that's kind of been ruled out. You mentioned this idea moments ago about, you know, people versus the property. It could have just been targeting the property, but you would have expected maybe some things to have been missing or some um, some evidence of a theft. To, to your knowledge, what was anything taken? No, one of the charges against him is felony burglary, but that was based on breaking into the house for the purpose of committing a murder. They have nothing was taken. And so just to clarify, when we say, well, maybe it was the property that was the target, not necessarily for that kind of like material gain for robbing it, but just because it seemed pretty easy to get in and pretty easy to observe and easy to like understand who lived there and what their comings and goings were in a way that just for that alone it may have been targeted but again of course that's just speculation what would be the um the benefit there then what would be the thing that would be attractive about uh, a house that's easy to gain access to and to observe what why would that be interesting to somebody who commit crime like this pardon yeah, I was thinking about that very question i mean i guess if you're targeting the house if it's just I suppose if you're targeting the person for a particular reason, there's a motive there. If you're targeting the property, I suppose it's just, I, I want to commit this crime and I think this is a place I could do it and get away with it. One of the things that he, as part of his criminal justice studies, as part of his master's degree, his senior project was actually reaching out to ex-cons violent criminals to ask them what their thoughts and feelings were about the crimes that they committed before and after they did it. And one, it's a survey. It was a, an invitation to complete a survey, an anonymous survey. So we, of course, went on that just before it was removed. It was removed pretty quickly, but we managed to get on that pretty quickly too, just to check out some of the questions that, the, that he was asking along with, he's the it was his project, but there are two other professors that, you know, signed off on it. So some of the questions were pretty, they get very detailed. So the questions, some of them were like, how did you prepare for your crime ahead of time? How did you choose the location? How did you escape? How did you get away? How did you feel? What were you thinking before and after? How did you choose your victims? How did you choose your targets? A very interesting, specific question. So, Based on the, and that was in June, 
2022. So about seven months before these murders. And based on that, you have to wonder if a killer was considering committing, a, doing something, you know, that's atrocious and you don't want to get caught, you're going to find someplace you don't, pe random people, you don't necessarily know a place, you know, a place you can see to get in and out easily, a place, you know, you can get in easily. Something like that could be some reasoning behind that. So the house is a target of opportunity. Yeah, could be, could be. That's just something could, that the police be. have said, have spec or have said in the past, who knows now what with this arrest, if they still, if that comes into play at all, but. Wow. I mean, is it possible as well that these are these people who who trespass and gain access as, as thrill seekers who didn't, you know, potentially didn't have any desire to harm someone, but might have been caught in the act or confronted? Well, you know, you you do hear about those cases where a cat burglar will come in to houses that is very clear that there are people there and even people awake, and that exactly what you say for the thrill of it for the just for the thrill of coming in, not necessarily even murdering somebody, but then if they do get caught, that often ends in, you know, bloodshed and loss of life. So, but in this case, they believe, just based on the charges read out, that he came in with the intention to kill. So they haven't gone further as far as like, with the intention to kill one person or all four or all six, and he got spooked and left with only four lives, but, that they don't believe he was there to do anything else but to murder. I mean, what's what's particularly gruesome uh, to consider about this is, is it appears to be one individual with a, a bladed weapon, several un other individuals. That's that's going to generate a lot of noise from that property. And I believe there were actually people on the property at the time that weren't targeted, weren't. Uh, but weren't uh, weren't uh, uh, woken up by any sort of noises or alerted by what was going on. I mean, maybe you can explain how something like that could possibly happen. Yeah, those are two girls on the first floor, the two surviving roommates. And they had said, again, they haven't really made any kind of statements speaking to that specifically, but there has been a lot of conversation around this in various outlets. And what we've heard and learned is that well, you know, it's a party house. That's very clear. That is, that there's no argument with that. As a party house, there's parties there constantly, and they're used to seeing and hearing noise upstairs. And they may have heard something that night and just locked their doors, believing it was a party. That their roommates brought people home and were having like a last minute get together or something. That's been one. That's been yeah. one speculation. The other is that they didn't hear anything at all. It's the house is laid out in such a way that. The top floors, the, the rooms directly under those floors, two floors down, can maybe only hear like. But I would also, screaming. I would also say that just being a twenty-something-year-old college kid who'd been out partying and gone to sleep, I mean, you know, sleep pretty hard and, and not hear anything. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I, I can attest to that yeah. for sure. Um, <laughs> So what do we know about the uh, the suspect, uh, Brian Koberger? I mean, I believe there is some reason to believe he went through quite a drastic personality change during high school. Yeah, well, we do. We know that when he was younger in high school, um, he dealt with a lot of being bullied because he was overweight. 
And at some point, just before his senior year, he managed to lose a bunch of weight and he gained a, a, just a, a lot of confidence, apparently, because he started to become more of an aggressor, more of a bully himself. And um, when he was in that situation of being overweight and being bullied, he also had a lot of difficulty with, with girls. You know, um, he didn't have a girlfriend. So once he lost the weight, he became more of a bully. And he also started to become um, sort of a creepy individual with, with girls. They, they always kind of felt that way with him. And as a matter of fact, there was a brewery he used to frequent in Pennsylvania where he would go and sit at the bar by himself and just watch the waitresses. And he wouldn't say anything. He would just kind of sit there and, and eyeball them until he had a few drinks. Then he would, uh, maybe, you know, his inhibitions would, would, would go, go away. Then he just became belligerent with them. So much so that it was so noticeable that the owner at some point took him aside and said, hey, you know, if you want to come in here and sit there and drink, that's fine. You can do that. But you've got to change your your situation with, with, with the waitresses here because you're creeping everybody out. And if you can't do that, you're not going to be welcome back here anymore. And that's that's a pretty big statement for somebody to, to, to make, I think, to single out one individual in a bar because there's lots of guys drinking in bars trying to, to talk to the waitresses. So, mm. you know, he, he must have stood out quite a bit. So that is that is just a, a something that we're aware of in his young, younger life, uh, behavioral wise. Which actually kind of makes you wonder if that might be one of the reasons, one of the ways that if he did know the victims, is that how he was in contact with them? We know that two of them, Zana and Maddie, yeah, yeah. worked at a popular Greek restaurant in town, in Moscow. And it's very common for people, for students from WSU across the border in Washington to come to Moscow and vice versa. So it's very conceivable that Brian could have been at that restaurant and seen them. But, um, and maybe then followed them back to the rest of the, the victims. But again, that's just speculation, but it's it's just one of many ways that he could have come into contact with them if that was a targeted act. But as, as of now, there there is nothing official that we can say that links these victims with the suspects, is there? Which, which has a lot of people scratching heads. Yeah. Yeah, it's very unusual. Although the one of Kaylee Gonzalez's father has said that because they have his daughter's phone and they're looking at, you know, all of her her different connections with people has wondered, he has said out loud, he's hinted that he has seen some connections between this person and his daughter and her friend group. But you have to kind of wonder, you know, it's a father speaking, of course he's grieving. You have to wonder if that's true or if not and what those connections might be. But beyond that, there hasn't been a clear line drawn between that group and this person. But we have to assume that obviously those facts will come out in the trial, but hopefully they'll come out with the release of the probable cause affidavit whenever that happens. So let's let's say hypothetically, and obviously we all here understand that, um, you know, everyone's innocent until proven guilty in, in due process and uh, justice must take place. But let's say that this individual is the person and he's, he's found and convicted as guilty. It, it, would he be, is there the death penalty in that particular state? In Idaho there yeah. is, yeah. Yeah. And um, 
what has the public mood been like in the area after this? I mean, I mean, there must be some some sense of relief that they now have a, a suspect in custody rather than the idea of some sort of mass murderer on the loose. Absolutely, I'd say so. I think I think there's definitely a, um, as you say, you know, we don't know if if if, if he's going to turn out to be the 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 person who actually committed the crime, but. The, the parents have expressed a feeling of, of relief knowing that somebody is in custody and, you know, an accused person. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly they've got to be relieved, but it's interesting because, I don't know if you heard this, but when he was arrested, apparently, according to News Nation's Brian Etten, that he said, he asked the police, was anybody else arrested? But then which of course would muddy the waters just to an accomplice, to somebody else, something like that. So it's been what, unclear why he would say such a thing. But then the follow-up to that is that he's now saying he doesn't remember saying anything like that. So it's it's just interesting to, to try and work out like what his defense will be, what his alibi will be. I mean, they believe that these murders happen sometime between 3 and 4 a.m. So what kind of a defense could you have considering you know that the guy from what his classmates have said, doesn't necessarily have a, you know, bustling social life at that hour. I mean, you're going to either be in bed asleep or what are you going to say? But um, yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting how it all comes out. Now he is back in Idaho as of today and ready to face like his first, his first hearing court procedure there. And that's when they say that they, it will be legal to release that affidavit and kind of offer more information. Right. So we'll definitely keeping a close eye on how that unfolds. I mean, we spoke about this um, a little bit before about this idea of the how, uh, sorry, the who and the why. And it seems like the who's often established, but we never, never always get the why. And that can be especially frustrating for people. I think people who aren't, you know, psychotic or prone to murder uh, can't understand why somebody else might be. And that's not necessarily a bad thing for sure but would this be something that would really frustrate you if you never really got a why are you just are you guys kind of satisfied with the idea of just having justice uh served and somebody being put behind bars or convicted or whatever or, or do you, would you would it really frustrate you not having a a, a why on, on this case i i think i i mean obviously having the right person uh, answerable to the crime is is, is very important but I do feel I, I do feel like like yeah I'd want to know I'd, I'd want to know why you know what the what the motivation is behind it um, just because I think most people would feel that way because it it allows you to I don't want to say make sense of it but it, it allows you to kind of make it a, a circle you know you, you kind of connects the, uh, the the whole thing for you maybe I don't want to use the word closure either but you, I think you understand it's it's just you feel like uh, it. It, it's a bookend, possibly. Yeah. Plus, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead, but I feel confident that once they outline what the relationship is between the two, that they will, that will kind of understand what the why is. I mean, so many, most of the speculation, I'm sure you probably heard, has been around the fact that he might be like an incel type, that involuntary celibate, these angry, angry men who are just like out there wishing harm on every pretty girl that's ever rejected them. And I think in this case, that's pretty much the angle everybody's sort of going with of like, well, maybe it was, maybe one of them was the target. Interestingly, Kaylee Gonzalez was, she didn't even live there anymore. She was only there for the weekend. 
And so you have to wonder was that's why her name has come up quite a bit about her possibly being the target because she was sort of the outlier that wasn't always there. So was that just the most horrible, tragic coincidence ever? Or was this, was did this person know, did this killer know that she was only going to be there and he only had a short window of time if you wanted to eliminate her and the rest of them, maybe the rest of them were target Bs. It's, it's very, it's hard to understand without knowing like the relationship between them. But I think once they outline that, it will be much easier to understand an actual motivation, even though no reasonable per person would consider that a motivation that this girl rejected you or she's, they're pretty and popular and you don't feel that way for whatever reason, you know, I mean, it's just, it's crazy, but, yeah. but I mean, that's the world that we live in. So <laughs> we yeah. don't leave the house anymore. Now we just stay inside. It's <laughs> just scary. <laughs> yeah. But there is definitely something to be said for this idea of, um, uh, crimes uh, in response to perceived slights against male honor it seems like a very common thing throughout the world unfortunately i just want to try to trace back the steps of the victims a little bit because i believe they were out doing what college students do uh drinking having a good time at a particular establishment in the early hours of the morning they went to get some food before i believe they they caught like a shuttle chaperone service back to their property is that correct and it doesn't seem like the suspect that's in custody now was with that group at any point leading up to them arriving there, does it? It doesn't seem like he came with them in a sense that maybe, you know, somebody would be picked up from a club and join the the, the group and, and then you'd move on and move on. It seems like he was either waiting outside the property uh, for them to return home. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, once they get his cell phone records and understand a little bit more about what they meant by his phone pinging in their in their vicinity in the weeks ahead of time and maybe even around that same time, again, just speculation, we would have a better idea. But we don't necessarily know what's not in the camera frame. Like you said, the Twitch live stream from that food truck shows so many people around, you know, in that general area waiting for food and talking and laughing, but we don't know who's you know, around that corner, standing in the dark, behind a tree, or... Out of frame. Whatever, mm. yeah, out of frame. Yes, he certainly, I think we can be confident, you know, 99.9% .9 confident that he is not in their immediate circle. This is not a person that would have been out with them or jumping into rides with them in any way. Like, this guy does not seem, he's quite, he's significantly older than them. He's 28. They're in their early 20s. You know, they're like this, like, a beer commercial beautiful and he's like you know just kind of a normal guy and a creeper a guy that people you, like when, call yeah, a creeper yeah. like i don't know that they're gonna be like hey brian when you're he 21 just, yeah when you're 21 i mean somebody who's 28 seems like seems so an old, old person yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely the world where they could have known each other but um but certainly you just don't which makes it even creepier and i think makes people more, even more fascinated with this case is that stranger killings are very rare. I mean, that is kind of a comforting thought. They're pretty rare, but when they do happen, they're super bizarre and it's mm -hmm. and scary because then all of a sudden you're like, Holy God, I'm absolutely not safe. Like anybody could just notice you for any reason. I mean, when you think about it like that and it's just, Oh God, I'm trying not, trying this, I, you, you know what? I don't think I'm leaving the house now. Thank you both. Thank you. Welcome very much. But I suppose another interesting aspect of this as well is it was in the very early hours of the morning. So, I mean, it, it seemed weird to be um, a case of 
uh, you know, an opportunist killing. It, for, for him to be there at that time uh, with no other, seemingly no other purpose, it, it feels like there's a, there's a potential that he may have observed these individuals, knew where they were, waited for them to leave. Uh, I mean, it, it is strange. I mean, what time did they, uh, if you were just putting piece in the timeline together, was it past 2, 2 a.m. when they arrived back at their property? Around 2 a.m. by the time they were all home and and the killings happened four four thirty. well they're thinking they kind of had a big window like between three and four <clears throat> because kaylee and maddie were on the phone they were calling kaylee's ex-boyfriend uh, actually right up until almost three three a.m so they know that obviously they're still alive at that point and then you know just walking it through in your own head they have food they're making these drug dials, whatever. And then they're kind of talking and they're both in Maddie's room because again, Kaylee was moving. So they're both, you know, talking, laughing, eating, you kind of go to bed, the lights are out. And then all of a sudden this horrible thing happens. So yeah, around 4 a.m. in that area, 3.34. Yeah. I mean, the person could have been outside of the house when they all got home, <clears throat> but then waited until they felt enough time had gone by that maybe people were asleep or possibly even saw, wait, waited until he couldn't detect any more motion. The lights were off. It just seemed very still. That's a possibility. So in, ten, in terms of this uh, jurisdictional minefield, where would this um, court case be heard? Idaho. Moscow. Yeah, Moscow, Idaho. Okay, that could probably when you threw Moscow at me then straight away, I thought Russia's involved for a second. Then yeah, I, so, I quickly yeah. remember. <laughs> cool. So um on top of that, uh, your coverage of this, what what's next for true crime recaps? What what can people expect if they go to your YouTube channel? Well, that's a good question. What's, <laughs> well, what is coming up? We've got we've got a lot of information on this. A lot of the things that we've talked about today and a lot more things that we've learned about the victim in his early years and I mean, honestly, if anything happened, yeah. if you're ever arrested for anything, everybody will come out of the woodwork to talk shit about you. So <laughs> you've got nothing but shame coming your way if you ever did anything. And that's certainly what we're seeing here. Like people, classmates, neighbors, everybody's coming forward to say like, oh, he, this and that happened. So a lot of information coming up on the channel about this. We're also seeing a lot of comparisons being made between Brian Koberger, the suspect, and Ted Bundy, of course, the notorious serial killer. In that specifically one crime of Ted's uh, is Kai Omega killings in 1978, I believe it was, where he killed, he attempted to kill four women in a sorority house on a college campus in Florida. And it was sort of a frenzied killing. And this, there's some similarities between this and that, in that even Ted Bundy's lawyer has said, you know, that his former lawyer obviously said there's some similarities between us. So, and Ted himself has been compared to Brian in that they're the shape of their face, their mugshots kind of have a lot of similarities. So, so we're going to go ahead and cover that Ted Bundy case just so people can understand what actually happened there. And then you can choose for yourself, see for yourself if there's some similarities, but that's coming will, up this week. I will definitely check that out. We've become some sort of uh, true crime obsessives in my household at the moment. Uh, still got, still got to work through uh, only murders in the building. Actually, I need to catch yeah. up with that. Oh my so, god. Uh, Show. Yeah, we're really enjoying it. Um, slightly left field question with you just comparing the way this suspect looks to uh, Ted Bundy. There is certainly something about the mugshot of a very dangerous criminal that makes most human beings go, yep, yeah, I, I can see it. 
what <laughs> I don't know if you have this experience, but what's going on there with with the the way that we connect with people through their eyes, where that can tell us a lot about sometimes, or at least we believe it can, about their psychological state. Well, I think I think that you know people. I, I think people can be a little bit biased sometimes when when something you know when, when a terrible crime happens, a murder, and they come out with a picture of somebody. I feel like no matter what that person looks like, they could yeah. they can look like uh, you know a, a homeless person, or they could look like a game show host. I think most people go, "Oh man, of course it's that guy." You know, <laughs> I think it's just a natural thing. Oh, look at him! Because when you put the image together with the act in your mind, either it's really like obvious, like yes, that person looks like a serial killer, or they look so much like a game show host or a model that you're like, whoa, that's even creepier, it, you know? So I think you kind of, you go along with the, um, with the thought process that's happening, uh, you know, that you're being presented this person. I think it's, I think people become a little bit biased that way. That's my yeah, personal thing. It's definitely a, a spot of projection there for sure. Um, so in terms of covering these things, and obviously where we touched about it a little bit, it can be quite grisly, very serious themes. It's death, it's murder. I mean, is this is there a part of you that sometimes thinks, you know what, I'd rather rather be doing something a bit more light than uh, creating content about horrible, you know, real life situations? <laughs> horrible life. Uh, uh, I mean, for, certainly for me, I do appreciate it when a case comes across our desk or our radar that where the person didn't die. I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. so I can just like kind of have a like, little bit more like, okay, let's. You know what I mean? It is a little less like it's a little bit lighter. It's a little bit lighter to, when you have when when there's no death in the story. Um, you know, we always try to be very respectful uh, when we're when we're when we're telling these things. And when you do have a story that doesn't have uh, somebody dying in it, it it does it does allow you a little bit of a little bit of freedom. To, to be a little bit more lighthearted in your telling, um, you know, but I think, I think it's, there's so much of it out there. And I think that we both have the same interest that you just talked about at the beginning of this segment, that a lot of people in this country and in, in, in your country and in the world have, um, because it's a, I, I I think it's a rare piece of human nature that people are fa fascinated with. That, that's that's what I think, and I and I and and we're just a couple of people that are fascinated with it too. Yeah, but I think the worst just to keep going on that is when you when the cases involve children, like the Madeline McCann yeah. case. That it's just so brutal to hear about the things that this Christian guy has done to these other children that they've seen like pictures of and what he's done to this even this woman, this older woman. And then to think that this poor child had to suffer, like, it's just, it's really, those are the cases, like, I, I, yeah, there, I can't there, even stomach. There are some, it's, it's, it's hard to, to recount some of these things sometimes. It really is. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, coming on and speaking to me. This hour has absolutely flown by and it's fascinating. I shall certainly check out more of your channel. Uh, so maybe you can tell our audience where they can find more of what you do. Well, you can find us True Crime Recaps on YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, all the all, 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 the, all, the, all the platforms. <laughs> yeah. 
If you just type in true crime recaps into your search bar, it'll, it'll, it'll bring it up. That's excellent. Thank you, too. I appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, enjoy what you do. Thank you. Thank you, Thank so you much. very much. Have a good night. You too. Wow, what a huge night tonight it's been, Stephen. Thank you so much. And thank you to all the viewers keeping the chat so lively. We're going to close this show now, and we're going to go over to Patreon. We're gonna, we've got an insider from Facebook. We've got Kevin Annette, who's going to expose more about the Vatican, the Royals, the New World O. And we've also got a Bigfoot section as well. So the link for, is going to be in the description box below this video if you want to check us out on Patreon, if you want to join the community there. Uh, have you got anything to say in conclusion, Stephen? Uh, not particularly, apart from I'm a little bit terrified to go out the house now. There's a lot of bad people out there. Oh, it's be... a dangerous world. It certainly is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I learned should... that one the hard way. <laughs> 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 All right, thanks. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in tonight. We've got Big Herc on the podcast tomorrow night. Sunday night, we've got... Joey Torres, original story. It's a four-series podcast, eight hours, um, two in January, two in February. He's founder of the 18th Street Gang, did 40 years in California prison, was an enforcer for the Bonanno crime family, the Mafia, murdered his boxing manager, and it, it's, it's going to be totally off the hook on Sunday at 6 p.m. So cheers, everybody. Thanks for watching us. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks to the guests, and hope to see some of you guys over at Patreon shortly. Take see care out there. there, wherever you are in the world. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Hey, Ryan. Hey, how's it going, Stephen? I'm very well, thank you very much. I was going to ask you to introduce the title of your book, but I think think we might have that covered, might we? <laughs> yeah, it's right there. <laughs> Excellent work. So uh, a lot of people will be probably interested in um, in trying to get your your views on how what you uncovered at Facebook compares with what we've seen from Twitter these last few weeks. There's been a lot of fanfare around the, the so-called twitter files a lot of people are treating them as if the, these are massive revolution re revelations rather some people have thrown around the term nothing burger uh, in their direction where are you on the, on this issue yeah I, I think it's relevant i mean obviously it's more relevant that, that the current ceo is revealing these things that does make an impact on uh, on what's being revealed uh and obviously it's getting a lot more reach than than other revelations by myself or, or other whistleblowers uh, since Elon Musk has over 100 million followers on, on Twitter, um, but hey Jason. Uh, be, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No worries. Um, so so yeah, I mean the, with the Twitter files, yeah, I think there, there's there's a lot there. I think it's reinforcing what you know, Dr. Shiva and other people have revealed that there's that government collusion. We saw inklings of that, you know, leading after the 2020 election in the U.S. We saw inklings, inklings of that that government collusion, that government. Uh, you know, work, working hand in hand with big tech. And we knew there was a buddy buddy relationship with big tech for, for a number of years, ever since the Obama years. Uh, so it's just a matter of, um, yeah, we needed that hard evidence. So this is just more evidence of that government collusion. So it's, it's definitely not a nothing burger. I think it's great stuff, but, um, and it kind of mirrors what in my, what I found in my book, Facebook was doing the same thing. Uh, I saw indications of of these instructions that were kind of weird coming from Facebook, and now we know the, why they were doing that. is it, It's because the government was instructing them to do, to do that. So let us fill us in on the specifics of what Facebook were doing. What did you what did you observe? What did you uncover? Yeah, so a lot of what I uncovered is is you know Facebook focusing and targeting conservatives. So I was a content moderator, and they t I would look at posts and remove content groups. Uh, comments videos and so facebook would would tell us to look for political trends and and target 
um, conservatives, basically, and their policies match that or their policies targeted conservatives. So, for example, um, this is a funny example. Like if you call someone a feminazi versus calling them a Trump humper. All right. (laughs) So they have their bullying policy and Trump humper is, you know, now if I report you for that, um, then and you report it, you, you report it. One of those gets taken down once one stays up. Uh, the phone Nazi one gets taken down. That's more offensive than Trump Humper. Um, that's one example. I, um, and then we have accept, examples for exa- of how they, Facebook allowed child pornography. They made exceptions to allow child pornography, which is horrible. Um, those are just a few examples. Well, that's that's a great example, the fem Nazi one there, because uh, for those not aware, this would be just a, a derogatory term directed towards someone who lent far too far into feminism, one might say. Um, and so, what would be the justification in Facebook's policy for removing something like that? Because I, I don't know—is it invoking perhaps the Holocaust? Is it a target? Is would it be seen as a form of misogyny? Where where would they come down on something like that? Yeah, because each of those terms by themselves are allowed. So you can you're allowed to call someone a Nazi, and you're allowed to call some call someone a feminist. So I mean, normally we look at negative character claims. Claims. So if I'm calling someone an idiot, I'm attacking their character. Um, so they had a they had a specific list of about a hundred uh, about eighty words where, that they told us what to action on those. So feminazi is on the list. Trumpumper. There's a few other words. Uh, so they basically made an exception like it normally shouldn't violate and they made an exception. So we found that time and time again, Facebook made newsworthy exceptions, whether it's calling white males terror threats or whether it's with their dangerous organizations policy, they would just make exceptions to their own rules. So, I mean, and this wasn't them essentially saying, look, the word fem Nazi highly correlates with you know very abusive uh, uh and offending post uh, this was literally using that word was in its own right considered a violation on that platform right so yeah they, we, uh, they were we were told specifically specifically to delete that phrase feminazi if if we had a name and face match so if if someone if and if any random person reported it we wouldn't take it down but if the person being attacked reported it we would we would take it down um, but if, but if, if you call me a Trump humper, and even if I report it directly, it stays up no matter what. So there's no way to delete that off of the internet. I think, uh, Trump pumper will never not be funny to me now. I don't, I don't think I'd actually heard that before. Uh, okay. So there, there are these, obviously, like you say, there's a, there's a bias there towards conservative leaning criticism. And I suppose the question is, is it, is it possible to have a social network uh, of that size that allows multiple thoughts, discussion, opinions, all all simultaneously being posted without some sort of political bias in the moderation. Is it possible to have a completely uh, apolitical uh, social media platform, do you think? I mean, if you're going to be moderating at all, then then which I don't, I don't think you should be moderating much at all of political content. But yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to be moderating, there is, there's always going to be bias. Um, they shouldn't be moderating political speech to begin with. If there's a violation of the law, then yes. But the, these posts that I was t- taking down were most of them were political. We're talking about election content um, in Canada, in the UK, <laughs> even throughout Europe, in the US. Um, but yeah, it, it's there's going to be there. Uh, yeah, they, everywhere, anywhere you go, there's there's bias. But I they they had this was digit. Well, this wasn't just casual accidental bias. This was purposeful 
targeting. Yeah. And uh, Jason, good to have you as well. And we're not purposely ignoring him. Just aware that Ryan's got a very short amount of time with us today as well. I believe that's right, isn't it, Ryan? Um, Perfectly fine. Uh, maybe you could, Jason, maybe just tell us a little bit about uh, how you two know each other. In what way do you collaborate? <laughs> well, it, it would definitely be the social media realm. Uh, I believe, Ryan, we met at, uh, I believe, a, a, an event called AMP down in uh, Miami. And uh, Ryan had come up to me and and uh, invited me to dinner. And we sat down and we collaborated and, and have collaborated ever since, in fact. Right. So, yeah. right, Ryan, what, what's the most shocking thing that you discovered about the way Facebook moderates its content? Yeah, um, probably the well, most shocking thing that I've, I discovered, and this is my book here, Behind the Mask of Facebook, uh, that I published last year. So it has over 300 pages of just evidence. But the most shocking thing that's in here is how Facebook um, made an exception for their child pornography policy. So there was a an image of a Brazilian children's band in, and there was ch- clear, clearly child nudity on the on the cover of this album, this music album. And Facebook said that they're making a newsworthy exception to allow this child nudity be- because of its artistic nature. So that's probably the most shocking thing that I saw, um, the most abhorrent thing. And, and believe me, I saw a lot of horrible things working as a content moderator. I saw, you know, cartel violence. I, I had to see nudity on a regular basis, but. The fact that they would just make an exception because of our, the artistic nature um, for child pornography, that just uh, that's a crime in and of itself. I mean, what, what just struck out me there, at me there is the sort of things you were seeing uh, in terms of cartel violence, child nudity, assault, things like that. They, they would usually be the kind of things that, uh, you know, law enforcement would have to look over as part of their job. But you, you were somebody who worked um for a social media company now what i mean if you don't mind me asking what sort of level was this role was this a role that was highly vetted and with a lot of training and preparation for the potential to see things like that or is this a job that it was a lot of like uh, administration based work where a sort of a mid-level people would be expected to see these things as well yeah it was very entry level so i was in my like late 20s but most of the people they were hiring for my same position were college age or early twenties. And so, uh, they, they didn't really vet people very well. I mean, they did, I do, I will say at least where I was working, they had health counseling on site They had a psychologist on site. So you could talk to them anytime. So I did appreciate that. But, um, but no, I, I've talked to people who say, you know, you really should just hire for ex cops for this type of work. Uh, because you're looking at the worst of the worst. You're, you're seeing just the most gruesome images on the internet. Um, and so, and, you know, we did escalate some things to law enforcement. If there was a live suicide video, for example, we would escalate that to law enforcement. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, I was there for two years. I, uh, as a moderator, I filmed with the hidden camera for nine months. And then as, as you mentioned, I met up with, with Jason Fick um, and he'll tell you a lot more about the work he's doing, but you know, the, the book I wrote, I just want the public to know. And, and I think it's important this in this age of digital this digital revolution, we need to fight and have, you know, uh, free access to information on the internet. And my book's been used in evidence in lawsuits. It's been being used in Jason's challenge and a few, a few and, a, and a few other lawsuits. Um, so I just want the truth out there, and we need to uncover it. I don't care who does it. Elon Musk, that's great. Everybody needs to expose these these big tech companies. That's 
nicely put. I mean, Ryan, have you got time for one more quick question before you, we let you get back sure. to your afternoon? So in, in yeah, terms sure. of uh, hidden cameras and exposing your former employers in, in book form, <laughs> where are you in, on, on a legal standing? I mean, was there a contract you had to sign when upon you know taking the job that would prevent you from sharing this kind of thing? Are you facing any sort of legal blowback for your revelations? So I went public with Project Veritas in 2020. And I haven't received any, I didn't receive any notifications or correspondence at all from Facebook or the contracting company I was with, with I was with. So yeah, I didn't hear anything at all from them. I mean, early on, I think it was a bigger PR fire for Facebook than anything. And, and any response from them would just be turned into a, a bigger PR fire. Um, and, but yeah, I've not received any kind of, kind of legal re repercussions for this. Um, and the the you know attorneys went through my book and reviewed it for publication so and nothing's no retaliation at all so that's been good okay thank you Ramia. before you go you can just remind our listeners uh, what your book's called and, and where we can find it yeah it's uh, it's behind the mask of facebook and it's you can find it um anywhere on the internet um on amazon or my website ryanhartwig.org but yeah behind the mask of facebook that's great thank you ryan nice to speak to you thanks Hey, Zia, Devin. Hi there. Can you hear me okay? I sure can. Oh, fantastic! Great to see you. So, Good to be seen. can you just can you just tell tell the viewers who are not familiar with you a little bit about your work, please? No, I can't tell a little bit about it. It's too long. <laughs> but although <laughs> we've got an hour, twenty-five years. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, why not? Uh, 25 years ago this February, we held a big meeting in downtown Vancouver, and there were 600 people, or most of them indigenous, and they had all gone through these death camps they call residential schools. It really kicked off our whole movement that not only exposed genocide in Canada, but really escalated all over the world and even forced Pope Benedict out of office in 2011. 2012 that in that period so i thought it was uh too bad the guy died off before the 10th anniversary of that you know we we're planning some nice celebrations um but anyway it's it's all about first the campaign to expose the murder of children and that's grown all over the world now we work with people in many countries fighting this genocide that's now affecting everybody with the covid police state and all that so uh you know murderbydecree.com tells a lot of the story i've written 22 books i mean you know what what can i say <laughs> so what what is the significance of pope benedict's death well i mean in one sense it's not significant at all yet another child killer has died in bed but in terms of the whole politics of the vatican um it you know bergoglio and ratzinger represented the two factions basically ratzinger was the old traditionalists within the Vatican, like the, a lot of the Italian cardinals and that were behind him. Bergoglio, Pope Francis, uh, so-called, is the New World Order Pope. He's the one who's been orienting a lot of the money and attention to China. As a matter of fact, uh, you might remember that in July, Bergoglio came over to Canada to do another one of these farcical apologies for mass murder. And um, he disappeared for a few days when he was there. Well, it turns out he was in Prince Rupert on the West Coast signing an agreement with the Chinese to underwrite their takeover of the North American economy to over a trillion dollars every year. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons that the next Pope could very well be a Chinese fellow, uh, one of the Chinese cardinals like John Tong. Uh, 
who because it's it's part of the realignment geopolitically east and it's one of the reasons joe biden went over there and fawned over the pope a few months ago it's the you know the western powers are very concerned about this and um and so you know it's really the death of ratzinger means really the death of the old traditional wing it's no full speed ahead to uh you know integrating the vatican more and more with china it's the only country in the world where the government gets to appoint the bishops it was a deal that worked out and um you know so i mean it's part of that but you know living in canada over the years it's nothing surprising when you know anything about the history of of you know this church and state collusion behind genocide why would the catholic pope ally with atheist communist china well don't forget religion and politics that's just window dressing for the masses uh it's all about power and when you look at their systems of power uh kind of the confucian maoist uh, and the vatican hierarchy it's really the very same idea you've got an emperor godlike figure on top and everybody else you know follows that tyrannical system um it was interesting when uh no accident that with the vatican was the first power to recognize hitler diplomatically because uh continual popes have been saying all the time that 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 fascist system of government is really the catholic social doctrine made made the law um you know they believe in in uh that kind of hierarchical system of thought and government and everything so they're natural bed partners plus it's all about big money you know it's always about the money um and the vatican uh according to uh a lot of people have done research on where the world's money goes about 80% of all the the um deposits in the world end up in either the vatican bank or the bank of Inter- international settlements in geneva these are like offshore <laughs> banks that nobody can access like the vatican bank you can't monitor it you don't know who runs it it's a secret society like the catholic church and um and so a lot of that money now is heading to the the rising power in the world china so you know i mean it it's just it's nothing new if you know anything about vatican history and politics right what do we know about the character of pope francis as a person uh yeah <laughs> he's uh like i often say to people nobody operates at any level of the catholic church which without being part of the crime because of a standing policy known as crimen solicitanus it's been around for a century it says that when children are raped or harmed everybody is silenced you don't tell the police or you get excommunicated now that's a criminal conspiracy it says to every child rapist in the world you can become a catholic priest and you'll get away with it um and so with that criminal conspiracy in place it's no accident that someone like uh, Jorge Bergoglio goes from being a priest to the head of the Jesuits in Argentina in 14 years and he did that by being very close to the military junta there during the dirty wars in the 70s and 80s where the military junta killed over 30,000 people and Bergoglio was the front man i mean there's an infamous picture of him arm in arm with general vadella walking down he was turning a blind eye to the torture and and killing of his own priests and nuns being thrown out of helicopters into the atlantic you know like what the, the military junta did and he turned a blind eye and he went around the world doing what he does now for the catholic church which is make them look good and it's interesting the present queen of the netherlands her name is maxima zurigeta she's argentine too and according to uh, ella stur who's a dutch independent journalist she discovered that that queen maxima has been paying the present pope bergoglio 15000 euros a month for the last 8 years 
you know, is this broad money, hush money? What is this? We know her dad was in the military junta with Bergoglio. We know the children were being trafficked and disappeared out of the uh, cathedral when he was archbishop there. Um, he, it's like in Spain under Franco, they had a system where they would traffic children and political prisoners. If you're thrown in jail, they would take your children, put them into loyal fascist or Catholic homes and raise them. I've met with some of these people in Barcelona a few years ago. Um, they don't know who their families are because they, the Catholic Church made billions of dollars child trafficking. And Bergoglio was in the, in the heart of this stuff. And um, he also has a very sordid relationship, like every pope and cardinal for a long time, um, with this thing called the Ninth Circle, which uh, is a child sacrificial cult we've talked about before. Uh, eyewitnesses have been at these ceremonies. It's... Um, uh, the Jesuits invented it back in the 1600s as, as a way to control, you know, heads of state. You you uh, you get them, like we see in the native world all the time. You get you go after somebody's children and you can control them. Um, so it, it you don't live long as a pope unless you're part of these rituals. And we saw that in um, the guy who lasted 30 days in office in 1978, John Paul I. Uh, he made the mistake of. <laughs> maybe taking the Bible too seriously, you know. Um, he started an investigation into the Vatican Bank. Uh, he was dead in 29 days. You know, everyone who was connected to him was dead within a year. All the magistrates investigating it got their cars blown up. So, I mean, it's the old sordid Vatican politics. And Bergoglio has survived by being just as blood-soaked as Ratzinger was. So, I mean... Um, the point is, though, that it's never about the morality of something. There's no place for morality or human rights in that system. It's all about power and where, where it, you know, who it rests with, right? So is the pedophile faction in complete control of the Catholic Church? Well, the Catholic Church is by, by nature. It's like saying we're the good Nazis. Well, I mean, mm. you know, you can't be in the hierarchy without supporting that policy of institutionalized destruction of children and um you know it's it, it's right implicit in the mindset you know god sacrificed his firstborn his only child for the good of all of us uh the the attitude in the catholic mass or the ninth circle is that the blood of the innocent will redeem you and that's exactly what happens in in from tos nanhaus and other eyewitnesses who were raised in the this intergenerational cult the ninth circle they say that's what happens. They take children and they torture them horribly, uh, rape them, and then not only kill them, drink their blood and cannibalize them. Um, that's And if you don't take part in that, you're killed instantly. I mean, and she saw this happening in Carnarvon Castle where uh, Prince Philip now, not uh, sorry, Prince Charles, now King Charles, uh, you know, was coronated. Uh, the, there's a link between him and, and the disappearance of children in Canada as well, which I can get into, but it, you know, at that level, it, it operates with impunity. And, um, you know, the, the, the old dilemma was, um, it, it's not so much people don't know what's going on. It's who wants to go up against these people. Right. So as judicial systems around the world have taken crimes against kids more seriously, how has the Catholic church adopted its legal strategies to circumvent this? Oh, well, I mean, they really, in a way, don't have to worry about legal 
think because i mean again the law is is just it's like the notion of human rights or international law it's a nice idea but it's never enforced um i know this when i was a united church minister and i got tossed out and they were able to destroy my family take my kids from me blacklist me do everything totally legally uh even though everything i was talking about in the residential schools were subsequently proven they're even admitting to know even bergoglio when he was in canada in the summer said yes it was genocide almost in a mocking way like yeah we did it what are you going to do about it we're not accountable right um it, it's a way people in power psychologically control people they kill and get away with it to say look what we can do and um you know people are outraged simply because they don't know the nature of what they're what, what you're dealing with so um once you know then you realize well you've got to fight this on a higher level on a different level and i'll give you an example of how we've done that when we started occupying churches on sunday morning within two weeks the government in canada buckled and started talking about a truth commission into the residential schools they started talking apologies they were you know it's like sun tzu says in the art of war you hit the enemy when they're weak and the catholic church is the major partner of china in this whole global corporatocracy being set up you hit the catholic churches where they're vulnerable on sunday morning in the collection plate and we find time and again that that it sends reverberations everywhere so i mean people have got to think in those terms and not you know mere protest or just sharing information but you know these are children's lives constantly um at, at stake and and children dying routinely so i mean it, that if that doesn't activate people i don't know what will right so you know 100 years ago you didn't see like these headlines uh, pedophile priests arrested like you see now are you saying that the ones that are arrested now are just sacrificial lambs right i mean you know it's it's funny because all they're doing is enforcing vatican policy when they hide up high child rape but they, occasionally you need to throw one of them to the crowd to make it seem like you know we're being accountable uh more camouflage to make them black seem white or even white seem black um it's you know just basic public relations gestures but what's interesting is when they do that then people are willing to talk and we find that a lot of our sources people have provided us inside information are people who are disenchanted who are victimized like me ex-clergy who are driven out for having the audacity to say you know what's what's our dirty laundry behind that door you know what are these all these children who have gone missing um so you know they should th- shoot themselves in the foot all the time because uh you know they're a, a big institution and the bigger you get the more unwieldy and inflexible and unstable you become and that's an advantage when you take on these big institutions right but these headlines though about the pedophile priest even though they're sacrificial lambs isn't it causing a drop off in church attendees yeah. oh yeah i was in uh, last time i was in dublin uh, a woman a friend of mine mary kelly she's a great old woman she <laughs> she she walked she and I entered Pro Cathedral on a Sunday morning. Now, this is Dublin. This is supposed to be the heart of Catholic country, right? Uh, seats 500 people. We counted 32 in church on a mass. Wow. And Mary then went up and seized the pulpit and started talking to people about the policies of the church. And when the priest came up, he, she decked him, just knocked him out. Um, <laughs> like, you know, she'd been raped as a child, not only raped, but see, they were used in drug testing experiments they would take kids from catholic orphanages and that like they did the native people in canada and uh, pfizer and all these other drug companies that are pushing the shot now on everybody they were using children routinely as drug testing 
guinea pigs and they would die. There's a big mass grave in Chum, Ireland, in, uh, in Galway, where they found 800 skeletons of babies, a lot of them missing their skulls. Classic, you know, um, satanic cult ritual evidence, right? Um, but guess who did the investigation? The Catholic Church and the government step in and, oh. and like in Canada, do a whitewash. Hey, well, I guess we'll investigate ourselves. Nope, didn't find anything. <laughs> you know, like, got a question from one of the viewers here. And if any of the other viewers have got a question, just put it in the chat and we'll pull them out. So Ray J has asked, has there been any improvement in the Canadian situation now that the mainstream have been talking about it? Improvement, yeah, in the sense that people on the ground are more willing to talk about things. They feel safer. It's like for many years, we were in our movement, we were the only ones talking about mass graves and genocide. Now everybody's doing it. So yeah, it, it uh, co-ops the issue in one sense. Um, but a lot of the eyewitnesses who are still alive are more free to talk. And then we say, okay, look, here's part of the story you didn't know about. Um, but there's this huge wall of resistance. Every time we try to get you know, our book, like with all the evidence of genocide, we try to get that in the school curriculum routinely and it's constantly blocked. The teachers want it. They want to teach the real history. But the school board, the government steps in, you know, they get calls from the church lawyers, threatening lawsuits. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's a way to shut the whole thing down. So it's a continual David Goliath battle swimming against the stream on this stuff because it's still going on. You know, the, 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 all these Native families that go missing all through British Columbia and Alberta, because China, if, if you check, you know, you've probably heard of the Highway of Tears, Sean, where a lot of the Native women go missing mm. uh, in, in northern British Columbia. You trace that highway where all the disappearances happen, and it's right where the liquid natural gas sites are. Because China's switching from coal to liquid natural gas, and they send in people and just wipe out all the local Natives. You know, the British used to do it. Now the Chinese are doing it, right? Um, so, I mean, it's it's part of that whole um, ongoing genocide that means that you can't know about the history because then you know what's going on now. So you got to put out a fake narrative all the time. Yeah, there were a few children harmed, but now we've apologized and we all want to heal and reconcile and make better. All this drug they keep pumping into people. And on the ground, you see the opposite all the time. Um, so, I mean, it's just a matter of seeing what is and not what you're being fed all the time, right? Just to add to that then, because that might sound a bit much for some people. I was speaking to someone that I knew from childhood who ended up working for a big oil company. And he said they just went around the world in the oil company. You know, if they find an area that they want, they just wipe out the locals, take right. it over just like that. So it's this stuff is, is going on, isn't it, worldwide? Well, I can give you a recent example of that, Sean. Um, if people go to murderbydecree.com, go to ITCCS updates. And if you look over the, the fall months, you'll see a report. It happened last September uh, in Saskatchewan. A, a big company called Rio Tinto. It's a big mining company. And as a matter of fact, the Queen of England had major investments in it. Her personal wealth increased 15-fold while she was on the throne because of her investments in depleted uranium, Rio Tinto. So Rio Tinto discovers diamonds beneath the uh, area near where I grew up. It's in eastern Saskatchewan on the prairies. And it's a um, where the, it was called the James Smith Cree Reservation. These are Cree people. And the local chief said, no, uh-uh, we're not going to allow strip mining in this area. What happens two weeks later is Chief Wally Burns of the Cree Nation, who's opposing this, in the middle of the night, 
six of his 10 relatives are murdered and four other people. And they, the Mounties show up and conveniently find their Lee Harvey Oswald scapegoat. This guy called, um, uh, I'll remember, uh, Miles Dempsey. He was a wandering kid. They claim he took a knife and in the middle of the night broke into 10 different houses and killed 10 people single-handedly. Now then, then uh, Miles Sanderson conveniently dies the next day in RCMP custody after killing the only other eyewitness, apparently. So these guys, it was an obvious kind of staged killing. And sure enough, Wally Burns backs off and the diamond mining goes ahead. But then guess who shows up? The Prime Minister of Canada. Mary Simon, the Governor General. Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who's already indicted for covering up residential school mass murder. They all show up and do this song and dance. Oh, it's horrible. Here's $62.5 million, the shash money to the local band council to allow the $2 million diamond mining to go ahead. Meanwhile, the, the coroner is a former Saskatoon police chief who covered up the murder of Native people when they were taken out in the middle of the night and uh, a dump. It's called a starlight tour, where you take a Native person in the middle of the, uh, the, the prairies in the winter and just dump them there without their shoes. They're dead. And he was convicted, uh, this Clive Weekell. Well, there he is. He's the coroner conducting the investigation into the murder of these 10 Crees. So... This happened this this fall, and that's the the regular way it is in Canada. And because Canada and Australia, they're right on the front line of what China needs. Geopolitically, it's their back door into into America. Australia, because of all the resources and kind of the the, the geography, so Australia and Canadian um, Indigenous people are targeted this way constantly. Uh, as are anybody like us who tries to take it on. Those are kind of the front lines of the Chinese expansion right now. So next question from a viewer is, how much does Trudeau know? Is he just a foot soldier at the low level? No, he's very implicated. Uh, he's trained that way. He's a classical Manchurian candidate politician. I know this because friends of mine worked in a place called the Hollywood Hospital where all three of the Trudeau children were brought. It's in uh, New Westminster in the suburbs of Vancouver. His mother, Margaret Sinclair, was there as a child getting electric shock treatment and all this stuff. Then Justin ends up there with his brothers. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the that scenario, like there's all this evidence about it. We've even interviewed the nurses who used to, you know, see the kids being brought in routinely. Um, and but no, his personal role in this is blatant. Um, you know, he. For example, he the, his first act when he was elected prime minister was to bring in what's called the Foreign Investment Protection Act, which allows China to not only buy up the whole country, move, removes all limits on Chinese investment, but they can even station their troops on Canadian soil to protect their 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 businesses. Uh, hello, isn't that an act of treason? <laughs> but no, I mean it's 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 very blatant all the time, and um, I don't know if you remember this big truckers convoy big protest to kind of shut down Canada for a while because there's this one highway that links east and west. They shut it all down. Trudeau um, takes off for the west coast. He vanishes. They show up in Ottawa and Trudeau vanishes off to the west coast, obviously to check in with his Chinese handlers, right? <laughs> but then he comes back and he invokes for the first time in Canadian history, the Emergency Powers Act to shut down anybody who's, who's involved in this convoy. They lock up the truck convoy leaders for months without charges, everything. It's this typical thing. So yeah, he's hes China's boy, big time, right? You know, you've previously brought us up to speed on the disappearance of the kids and the role of the queen. 
and Prince Philip in that. That was some of the very early stuff that we did that went viral on YouTube that they banned us from uh, having there. But earlier on in this conversation, you mentioned the role of King Charles. I didn't know about what what's his uh, involvement. Oh, Charlie boy. Well, you know, he has this this appearance of somebody who's kind of stupid and innocent, but in fact. Um, you know, he, we all know about his association with Jimmy Savile and some of that blatant stuff, right? But um, if you recall, on October 10th, 1964, 10 children were abducted by Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip out of the Kamloops Residential School, this Catholic-run school, and um, they vanished. The one eyewitness, William Coombs, is killed in St. Paul's Hospital by arsenic poisoning, according to the nurse, Chloe Kirker, who examined him, right? Um, but it turns out that not all of those children were killed. Two of them were taken back to Carnarvon Castle and ritually killed there as part of the Nine Circle Ceremonies, October 30th, 1964, at Sawain. Charles was present. We also understand from sources in the police that when William Coombs was killed, it came as a direct result of an order from Westminster. There was a kill order out on William Coombs because he was the one eyewitness who see this. So, um, you know, his Charles's implication in this, you know, is again, as a shareholder in Rio Tinto, he was undoubtedly connected to that massacre of the Cree Indians in Saskatchewan recently. So, I mean, it just goes with the job. Um, you know, I mean, but he's already been, he had papers served on him, you know, uh, that there's a, in England, there's a, a group of people in, you know, investigating this, but I mean, it's, it's the same old dilemma when the killers are in charge people feel there's just so much you can do, right? You certainly can't do it in their system, but you've got to create these other pressures, like not only our, our direct actions, but our common law courts, the things that forced Ratzinger out of office in 2013, right? Do you know anything about Camilla and her role in any of this? No, not personally, and not things I've seen, but I mean, <laughs> just, you know, I wouldn't put anything past any of these people that were in the world they operate in, right? So with Pope Benedict's death then, is there a power struggle in the Vatican? I think there's less of one now because like I said, um, the traditionalists are on the decline. One of the things that Bergoglio, Pope Francis did, and people were scratching their head over this saying, um, as he was on the plane back from Canada in the summer after signing that deal to finance the Chinese takeover of the resources and infrastructure all over North America, he makes this kind of offhand comment to reporters, oh, yes, it was genocide. Um, and so, you know, what that does is, what do you do when you could be threatened with lawsuits? Well, you bring in all your assets and you hide them. And so right after he got back to Rome, he announced that he was going to centralize all money in the Vatican Bank. He's calling in all loans. He's shutting down societies like um, the Knights of Columbus and Opus Dei, who have a lot of money. He's saying, okay, you're, that's all in the Vatican Bank now, because, of course, China's saying, hey, wait a minute, we want our $1 trillion guaranteed now. Uh, so it was almost a provocation to, to give him the justification to take all the money, gather it all in, and ensure his his buddies in Beijing that it's, it's coming through to them. So all of these things are calculated. And um, so, yeah, he wouldn't have been able to do that if there was a major power struggle going on. I think the Ratzinger wing are on the decline. Um, Bergoglio is probably going to step down soon. Um, because there's too much shit on him. And it's like what happened to Ratzinger. You've got to get rid of the guy with too much on him and then bring in the new smiley face. 
Um, it could be a, an African. If I were them, I'd do something politically correct, like have an African on the throne now. Um, but more likely, it could be, like I say, this Cardinal John Tong, who is, there's two cardinals in China. One is a dissident, uh, Joe Joseph Zen, and he's criticizing the human rights record of China and all that. But this John Tong is part of the state church, the state Catholic church, the official church that the Vatican endorses. And if there's going to be anybody who could be pope politically, that would probably be smartest to have a Chinese pope in now to smooth the whole you know, process we're talking about. Some of the viewers are wondering, what is Opus Dei? Uh, it means in Latin, the work of God. And but every time they say God, you should read it as Satan. <laughs> but um, it's a uh, several centuries old secret society, kind of an ultra conservative faction, you know, in the Catholic Church. They are very linked to dictatorships all over the world. Opus Dei, when they're like in Argentina, when they were murdering people en masse, Opus Dei was one of the advisors to the government and Archbishop Bergoglio. Um, and so it's it's got his hands in a lot of pies. It's they were involved in the murder of John Paul I. Um, in in you know they're part they're very much behind what's called the uh, Holy Alliance, which is the Vatican Assassination and Espionage Bureau. Um, they were set up in, in the 1500s to kill Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, you know, that, that was her, uh, their, their claim to infamy. But, um, you know, they've been killing people all, all down the centuries, you know, this, this thing. So, yeah, they're, they're right in there with all the dirt, right? So how does this prolonged war in Ukraine fit into all of this? Well, think if you're the Chinese and you're an expert in the art of war, what do you want to do? There's Russia. It's like Orwell predicted. You got Oceania, Eurasia, East Asia, the three power blocks, and uh, you get Oceania and Eurasia to fight each other. So you know the, this whole thing. They're funding the political parties in America, the Democrats and the Republicans, to destroy each other. This internecine civil war in America between blue and red parties are distracting, keeping America focused and weak and divided and occupied. They just sent $44 billion to the Ukrainians uh, to keep that Russian America occupied. Well, China picks up the marbles. So, I mean, and the Vatican. So it's classic Sun Tzu. I mean, and, you know, it's um, someone once joked that the Americans lost in Vietnam because they were reading von Clausewitz uh, and the Vietnamese were reading Sun Tzu about how you outmaneuver a bigger opponent you get the opponent to fight each other and destroy itself rather than fight it directly so yeah people say are the chinese going to occupy north america they're the people's liberation army and no they don't have to they they own the debt in america half the debt now they they own more and more of the economy and the infrastructure um you know transportation the whole bit so it's that kind of behind the scenes takeover that's going on right so who owns the military industrial complex that's profiting from all this war well, it's kind of, uh, it, it's not so much about the countries anymore, because countries are, are like uh, a vestigial organ. They're, they're about to fall off. They're just the appearance for, to keep the masses divided, like, like religion, right? It, there's power groups within the corporatocracy, right? And a, a lot of it now is channeled through, uh, through China. And did you know that two-thirds of all of the economic growth in the world happens in the, in the Indo-Pacific region? Wow. Like the Pacific, India... Mid East, 
Southeast Asia, the Philippines, China. That's where it's all happening. Um, you know, so I mean, um, look there for the money, follow the money always, and it'll take you there, which is Chinese sphere of influence. There, a lot of the, you know, I mentioned the trillion dollars that the Vatican is, is underwriting them every year. A lot of that goes into what you can look it up. It's called the Road and Belt Initiative. China's buying up the road systems and railways and ports all over the world. And they're channeling all of it into Asia. Just like the British did, you know, just like the Americans did. Now it's China's turn. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, that's kind of the general picture, right? The Va- uh, Rebecca is asking about the Vatican's investments in the military-industrial complex. Huge. Oh, it's huge. They own the biggest small arms company in the world, Beretta Limited. A lot of them, like the Anglican Church in England, big investors in, in the uh, landmine industry. Um, they are major shareholders in Big Pharma, over $9.5 billion in Pfizer alone. Um, but look it up. I mean, th- here's the thing, though. It's hard to do research because the Vatican Bank is a secret closed society. You can never find out what they're doing, but you can hear echoes of it. Like in America, it's the only country in the world where the, the church has to disclose a certain amount of its, its financial dealings. And you get glimpses of this, um, you know, in, in some of the American and in the economist and that they'll make an occasional reference to this, but it's really hard to track down unless you know people on the inside. And, you know, if you, Create enough pressure and awareness, those people start coming out with that information, right? So you talk about these Orwellian three big powers. Will that spread to Taiwan? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's history. I mean, it's that China's engulfing the whole region. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's where America was after World War II. Britain's going down. America was going up. Now America's going down. China's going up another 50 years you'll see the world economy pretty much owned by China um, militarily as well. So, I mean, it's the, 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 one of the frightening things about that is within the Eastern world, there's no tradition at all of common law of the idea that people have the right to be critical of power that, you know, that you can find the truth through question and answer the Socratic method. No, the Confucian system of thought and education is you have the teacher, they tell you the truth you regurgitate it, everybody's in line with the emperor. And so as that ideology spreads all over the world, you're going to see it's a perfect medium for the corporatocracy because that's what the Vatican and the corporations want. That's what's behind the whole COVID microchipping program is to make everybody components of that big machine, literally. And so that's why people have to bury their differences, especially in America. They got to forget about these contrive differences and find a new basis of unity to resist this bigger enemy that's facing all of us now, right? She said China's absorbing the whole region. Does that mean that there could be a proxy war in Taiwan then against the, you know, with these three big Orwellian players? Well, you know, you, you notice the Americans have talked, made noises about they've done maneuvers in the South China Sea and everything, uh, but they always back off. Um, you see, America's too divided. Like they're already engaged in back in the Ukrainians, um, they're not going to get involved in a shooting war in, in Asia. They're just spread too thin. Um, and their debt is enormous. And like I say, all the Chinese have to do is call in the debt and the American economy goes bloop. So they've got them by the knackers and Beijing has Washington, you know, where they so want hear, See, there's these reports about the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. What are your thoughts on them? 
Oh, well, the Ukraine has a long tradition of, of that, you know, um, not just hating Jews, but like in, in World War II, the Ukrainian SS were the more, more notorious of the SS groups, right? Uh, something conveniently swabbed out of the group memory now. Um, I remember in Canada after World War II, more Nazis were brought in than any country in the world. And they even shipped in an entire Ukrainian SS division. Um, you know, uh, a lot of these people went to work in the MK Ultra program and the Indian hospitals. I remember a native woman I spoke to who was sterilized. Um, she looked at the doctor's arm and right there where there was that SS tattoo. Um, lots of, we've documented in the Indian hospitals, these guys doing pain threshold experiments where you torture children to death, like what they were doing in Auschwitz, Treblinka. Uh, but again, you know, it, it's like that's a long tradition in Ukraine. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's just history playing itself out again, right? Do you think Princess Diana, publicly speaking out about the landmine industry, played a role in her death? Very likely. I mean, because again, it's always a question of are you how big are the toes you're stepping on? And do they have to set an example, right? Like people were saying, well, they'd never kill Martin Luther King. He's too well known. Well, of course they will if they want to set an example or like her. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, that's all probable then quite possible. But the, the question then is don't let it scare you because that's the purpose of it, killing in plain sight is to get everybody frightened and running away. Um, you know, so. What can you tell us about the recent massacre of Cree Indians in Canada? Well, I, I mentioned it earlier in the show. Um, it was at the behest of, we believe, the royal family, who are major shareholders in Rio Tinto, with the with the open collusion of, like, why would the governor general, the prime minister, and the head of the Anglican church all fly out to this little Cree reservation? And Trudeau hands them $62.5 million dollars after the main chief who was opposing the Rio Tinto, six of his relatives are killed in the middle of the night. I mean, it's a clear warning to people. And they, this happens routinely in the native world. Every few months, something will happen, like a Maori will come to the door and just shoot a native woman through the heart, right? A killing. And then he'll say, oh, she was holding a knife and he won't even be uh, reprimanded, right? I mean, they routinely do this at a targeted population to get everybody terrified. Like why they grab native children and traffic them all the time. Keeps everybody cowed and they don't challenge the chief when they're signing away the land and the resources to China, right? It's just state terrorism and church terrorism and it, it works routinely, right? We've got a question from a guest. What do you think will happen to Ghislaine Maxwell after the 23rd of January deadline? That's from Matthew Steeples. I don't know. You'll have to tell me. I'm not up to date on that issue at all. I'm kind of... I don't I'm not. I've written books about it, but I don't know what the 23rd of uh, January deadline is, Matthew. On another note, that we're talking about deadlines, it's, it's triggered something at me. So we recently had a podcast guest. He flew over from America. I won't say his name. And he ended up doing 40 years in California prison for murder. And he talked about this priest in LA when he was a kid that would give the, offer the kids sneakers to fillet them. And all the kids, you know, didn't properly understand the the, the um, insidious uh, nature of what was happening at the time because they were so young. Anyway, this this priest, um, there's massive settlements being made now um, pertaining to these cases. But the guy who flew over, he said that there's like a deadline now whereby 
you have to sue the church by this point. I think it was I think it was the end of of last year, and then you you can no longer sue them anymore for these yeah. pedophile cases. Is that is that the case? Oh, that's that's the norm. Statute of limitations are continually lowered. Like normally, there's no statute of limitation on murder. If you killed somebody 50 years ago, you can still be tried for it and your your accomplices. But when the the shit began to come out about all of these mass murders and trafficking and institutionalized rape uh, of children, um, the church steps in and through their political flunkies, pass legislation that says, oh, no, you have to have done it by a certain date. You only have three months to report it. all these restrictions, that's how about 90% of the survivors of the residential schools were excluded from legal action. Just arbitrary things to help the killers get away with it. So it's totally unlawful. But, um, you know, <laughs> money talks, the rest walk. I mean, you know, that that with trillions of dollars at their disposal, the Vatican can pretty much do anything they want. So it's the same old game, right? So you seem to be in good health and spirits, Kevin. Uh, previously, you you seemed a bit shook up because there'd been attempts on your life and stuff like that. Has that died down now? It goes in waves. Um, you know, it's it's always um, <laughs> at this stage, you don't want to create martyrs. By and large, they don't want to create martyrs because then people say, "Hey, wait a minute, maybe he was onto something." Right? Um, I've had to be a lot more careful in the way I operate. I normally aren't, um, but don't forget, like somebody like me. They did everything short of killing me. And uh, it's not good to kill somebody. You've got to create a, a, a fear around them and a discrediting, which is far more effective than, than murdering somebody. And that worked very well for many years in Canada. People were literally afraid to even mention my name or to talk about this stuff. Uh, and the and the shutout now is equal. You know, you, you rent a hall and it's shut down. You in, you invite people, they start funding you, then they're shut down. I mean, it, it's, it's like automatic now, right? But... Um, that doesn't ever stop the change from happening and the impact, you know, getting that, that out there all the time. So you just keep at it. I mean, you know, we're all going to die. The question is, how do you want to die? <laughs> you want to die fighting to the end or do you want to crawl away and get a few more moments of slave life? I mean, that's not, <laughs> you know, forget it. <laughs> so how are your campaigns in Canada and around the world going right now? Well, you know, it's backward and forward all the time. Like um, there's people setting up, on the model of our Republican Canada, uh, people now in nine countries, we have regular Zoom calls. They're trying the same thing all over Europe and Australia and South America. They're, they're, they're taking the side that people can govern themselves. They can set up our own courts or our own assemblies, pass our own laws, like the one we did in Canada in 2020 that nullified all COVID measures. And I tell you, when I show my citizenship card to cops, they always back off and say, look, I'm not under crown jurisdiction, you know. We've nullified Crown authority perfectly within our right to do that. Our local assembly passed a law and I'm bound by that law. You, you got to think outside and act outside their system. And then it starts crumbling because we, we, it's like a balloon. Once you start taking your energy out of it, it just deflates. So, you know, we don't fight them. We, we say to the cops, come over to us, take an oath, nullify your oath to the crown and take it to the people and their constitution and our Republic. And we find that's happening in small ways, but, like anything real, it's happening from the grassroots. And um, so that's been really successful. The repression happens as a result in response, especially in the West Coast. Every time we try to build an assembly, Republic assembly in the West Coast, it gets taken out quick because China does not want 
interference in the in British Columbia and Alberta, where their main thrust is right now to grab a lot of the resources. Um, but I mean, with in February, we're doing all sorts of things because it's it's February 9th is the 25th anniversary of us beginning the campaign about genocide in residential schools. Um, February 26th is the anniversary of the murder of William Coombs in St. Paul's Hospital. So last last year, we took a coffin with William's name on it, walked all over downtown Vancouver, stopped traffic, went into the hospital with a bullhorn and talked about how you're murdering people in this hospital. It was great. Cops didn't know what to do. <laughs> so when you when you put it in their face like that, like on churches on Sunday morning, they, they don't know what to do because you've gotten in behind their flank. And so we always have to think of ways of doing that. So having great fun doing it, right? It's the best way to uh, spend my 67th birthday on February 10th. So what, what's your next book going to be about, Kevin? I just wrote it. It's called uh, a, a Tale of Two Brothers. It's a, a semi-fictionalized account of my brother Bill and I, because we're kind of like opposite, very opposite. He's this retired, get this, he's a retired big pharma CEO um, who's like, always being disdainful, disdainful of me in that. And the, the, it's a, it's a story about our, our life together and, uh, but how we represent these two kind of strains in Canada, um, you know, and uh, his whole history of, he was involved in, in, in uh, a water company. He, he helped bring China into the province 20 years ago, uh, buying off politicians and secret deals, uh, you know, to get exclusive rights to export bulk water. I talk about that in the book fairly not so veiled reference to the real company and, and him. So I thought, you know, within every family, you know, you got to at some point face your dirty laundry. And I figured, why not, right? So is he completely open with you then about the corruption that he's helped implement? It's funny because it's like in the church, when they think they've got you, they admit everything because they figure, what's this guy going to do with it? You know, uh, what can he do to stop us? They think they're God. So Bill used to disclose this stuff, uh, stuff on my, my late mother, who was involved in it, too. They talked about the inside uh, uh, deals going on. The Prime Minister Mulroney, ben, Prime Minister uh, Premier Van Der Zem in British Columbia, all had shares in Western Canada water. They gave him exclusivity rights in return. Uh, there was the mafia, the DiBartolo family that bought into the, uh, the, the company. And the, the woman who testified that she took $10,000 in a brown paper bag to the environment minister on behalf of the company. She dies the next day and, 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 or the next week and can't testify in court. And all the judges, it's like the, the killing of the Pope in 78. All the judges start dying. So water war crimes, look it up. It's a, a water wars crimes. It's a website that documents some of this. But I thought, hell, now's the time to write a, you know, write a family account of this shit, right? We've only got a few minutes left. If people are watching, get get your questions in now. This is your last chance to get your questions in. So we started this broadcast today, Kevin, um, four hours ago, talking about Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. Have you got thoughts on them? No, I, I mean, I wish I knew more about, like, I, I don't spend a lot of time looking at the official institutions and that. I, I'm too busy on the ground working with people, but... It, the general picture is, as I've described, the the the, the ascendancy of China uh, and the subordination of a lot of other interests to that geopolitical kind of power in the world. So um, I think that that's what people have to keep their eyes on. It's like I like to quote Napoleon. He said, uh, in battle, a bad general sees too many things. 
I always keep my eyes on the main body of the enemy. So you have to ask, who is the main enemy? Don't let go of your attention on that, right? So because of the joint com com communist history, do you think China and Russia would team up against America? It's not about ideology. There's no such thing as communism, capitalism. It's all fluff. Uh, and and they, Russia is doing China's job right now by fighting in Ukraine. And maybe there'll be a payoff. Maybe he wants Putin to come down. Maybe it would help China. Who knows, really? Uh, it's flexible. But, um, you know, they hold the marbles, by and large. And if America was smart, they'd line up with Russia against China, right? Um, but, I mean, again, they're fact too factionalized and divided in their own country to, to, to bring the will to bear to do that. But So, Re Re Rebecca wants to know, do Kevin's books list sources, as I would really like to start researching these subjects? Oh, yeah. I mean, the best... In general, murderbydecree.com, it's up online. Uh, all of my books you can see there. And go to Amazon, put my name in, Kevin Annett, and you'll see all of them, including the recent one, Tale of Two Brothers. But um, you can also write to me, um, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. And I can connect you to a lot of sources, uh, not just internet, but even more real about this stuff. Jake wants to know whether China is facing a crisis in population. I'm not sure. Um, that's a good, I mean, I don't think it's about numbers ever. It's about, you know, the economy and how much dissent there is within China, how controllable it is. I mean, all of that, right? What are your hopes for 2023? Well, uh, the hopes of all of us to have a world free. I think we're in a civil war between free humanity and the corporatocracy. And I hope people get together and overthrow the bastards. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just want to say in closing, this is a special year for me because it's 50 years since I was first condemned in the public media. When I was 17 years old, I helped organize a high school, a union among <laughs> high school students and a bill of rights for young people. And I was denounced, me and my two friends who headed this union, we were denounced in the columns of the Vancouver Sun and Province newspapers as anarchists who wanted to bring down the school. I had death threats. There were Mounties coming to our door. I said, this is a precursor to the way my life turned out. But I thought, hell, one thing I learned out of that, Sean, is that the powers that be are mostly smoke and mirrors. They like to scare you, but when push comes to shove, they don't have a hell of a lot of power except what we give them. So uh, I'd like to remember, honor this year, 50 years still at it. Thank you. Just just remind the people where they can find you online and stuff. Murderbydecree.com, uh, Republic of Kanata, K-A-N-A-T-A, RepublicofCanada.org. Angelfire101 at ProtonMail.com is that. And then Sundays we do our blog show at, um, I believe it's 11 p.m. Greenwich time, 6 p.m. Eastern time, at BBSRadio.com slash Here We Stand. Thank you, Kevin. You're always on fire. We salute your great work. You have a great rest of your day over there. Cheers. You too, brother. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, brother. Thank you. All right. What a fantastic guest, Kevin. He just never disappoints, does he? It's it's just like a journey, like a fast-paced journey into all these um, areas that the powers that be don't want us talking about. But he's carrying that torch and power to him. Huge thank you to you guys. I'm going to... I was told that it was problematic logging on for some people tonight, so I'm going to launch a complaint with Crowdcast Patreon when I finish this stream. But um, we've got Big Herc tomorrow, but we've got the original 
Joey Torres on Sunday 6pm. It's it's absolutely mind-blowing, his story. Thank you for all your questions tonight. It really helps it. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Ash has gone bed already. And salute to Ray J as well, because he's everywhere. He's <laughs> indispensable moderation of, of Ray J. Huge thank you, Ray J. Happy New Year, everyone. Take care, wherever you are in the world. Thanks for watching. Until next time, see you then, then. Cheers. Bye-bye.